How long was I gone? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Plot Devices. It's been a minute, several minutes, several hundred thousand minutes, who's counting? Hope you all have been doing well as you can be over the many moons since we last posted an episode. Some of you are probably wondering, where the hell have you been? Some of you may be looking in your new episode updates on your podcast platform of choice going, who are you people? Maybe somewhere in between, that's probably more likely. For those of you who may not be entirely in the know, hi, my name is Brandon King. I host a show called Plot Devices. We talk about new movie releases, sometimes industry news, and sometimes other things if my ambitions didn't get the better of me. We last uploaded in May of 2023. All of those episodes, by the way, are still back on the channel if you're curious. And then we kind of went off the radar. So what happened? Essentially, myself and my co-host Noah Guzman decided around that time of episode 50, hey, this is all a little bit much. Why don't we take a two-month breather? And at the time, that sounded like a fantastic idea. Take May and June off, come back in July, recap some some movies just in time for the Barbenheimer phenomenon to do what it was inevitably going to do, and then get back to business as usual. And that was eight months ago. It is now January 2024, hopefully as you're listening to this, and we missed a lot. The WGA and actor strikes, those were just heating up when we last left off. Those are now over, thankfully, for the time being. We're now knee-deep in awards season, and a lot has been missed. That is to say, we're back, and coming back in a pretty big fashion. This whole update is going to be attached to episode 51, which we will get to in just a few minutes. If there, if you want to skip, there are timestamps, as usual, in the description. This will be our de facto 2023 catch-up episode. Basically, I had recorded several reviews that were meant to come out as far back as October that just never got the full editing treatment for various reasons. And so those will all be cut together in what you will hear today with guests ranging from Koki Riley and Dylan Roth to former show guests Leia Zweig and Danielle Bokenkamp. It'll be a fun time, but that's actually not all, because next up on the docket, we'll have two mini-sewn specials. They will not be mini. It's basically just a joke at this point that I want to keep running with. One will be our 2013 year in review special. If any of you paid attention to my social media feeds at the movie King 45, if you're curious, um, I was actually putting the word out for that months ago and I actually recorded it with Koki Riley. As I mentioned, along with Ryan from Realspective, we talked for several hours about 2013, uh, film culture, the best films of that year, a lot of stuff in relation to that. That will be up in the near future as well, as will, of course, our top 10 films of 2023. No exact date on that, but again, I have started recording that. That will be out very soon. Finally, new Plot Devices episodes. What's going on with the main show? Well, essentially, the plan is what the old plan was, which was, oh, I'll start back in October. We'll do monthly episodes for the rest of the year. And then, boom, 2024, we'll go back to uh, biweekly content. That was not going to happen at this point. So what's essentially going to happen is the last weeks of January and February, so more than likely the weekends of February 2nd and March 1st, you will be getting the full 90-minute shebang of plot devices that you will mostly be used to, except it will be all reviews. Uh, we're taking a break from the news coverage for just for the time being, not because I don't want to, it's purely for scheduling reasons, and that will be a recurring thing in this update. But it will be as many reviews as we can get to either from just myself or preferably with guests. That will be condensed into a full-blown January and February episode package that will be episodes 52 and 53, respectively. Then, once we get into March, episodes will move to twice a month with the hope that we can get back to our regular bi-weekly scheduling by at the latest midway through the year, if not earlier. So why are we not just going back to bi-weekly immediately? Simply put, 
over the break, I realized a couple of things. Mostly that not having the pressure of doing a 90-minute to two-hour show every other week was kind of a nice thing. Um, But also just the fact that time is a valuable thing. My work and life scheduling is literally night and day compared to what it was in summer 2023. And as such, it's just infinitely smarter to take the return of the show slower for the sake of myself, the editing, and anyone willing to use their time to be on the show, including the aforementioned guests who I owe an apology to. These reviews should have been out way timelier. I'm very bad at this. I'm doing my best. I hope you all forgive me and come back on the show eventually. But if I want the show to be how I how great I think it can be, I have to take the time with it, and I hope you guys will stick with that. That being said, you've heard a lot from me. What about the person most of you follow the show for, Monsieur Noah Guzman? Noah, at this point, is taking a leave of absence from the show. He is focused on his own life as well. I wish him nothing but the best. He's going to be phenomenal in all of his projects. He's the sweetest, one of the most charismatic people I know. And he is welcome back on the show in whatever capacity and whenever he wants. I love him dearly. I hope you all will go support him on social media and all of his projects as well. So without further ado, I've kept you waiting way long enough. Let's get to episode 51, the 2023 catch-up. Ooh, there's the intro music. Oh, it's amazing. Yay! Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices episode 51, the 2023 catch-up. I'm your host, Brandon King. Hopefully you heard the whole spiel from earlier, uh, TLDR. Plot Devices is coming back. Exciting things, best of 2023 and Oscar reactions are coming very soon at the end of the month, along with January releases. A longer-than-it-should-be-2013 anniversary special is coming to you very soon, but for right now, 2023, add some movies. I didn't get to all of them, but I did get to review a couple with some really lovely people who agreed to be on the show. Uh, Leia Zweig joins us to talk about Saw 10. Dylan Roth from Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe joins us to talk about Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Friend of the show, Danielle Bokenkamp joins us to talk about the Marvels. Koki Riley joins us to talk about David Fincher's The Killer. And then Danielle joins us once again to talk about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Quick aside, these were taped long before I got my fancy schmancy sounding microphone. Oh, doesn't my voice sound really good? I actually don't sound horrible this time. But yes, I don't sound amazing on these. This is a given. My headphone mic just kind of farted out on me and my sound system wasn't working at the time. Excuses, excuses, I know, but just know the guests all sound fine. I did everything I could to make them sound great. They're doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. So just bear with me if my voice sounds like it's in the middle of a swamp. I don't want to edit too much of this. These are basically going to be spliced in between one another with little sound effects in between. There will be timestamps in the description. These are already months late as they are. Again, I'm so sorry for delaying them as much as they did. So let's get into episode 51 of Plot Devices, the 2023 catch-up. Leia, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, I brought you on because you are the biggest song nerd that I know. Hopefully when we, are director- we eventually do directorial debuts, you can talk about the first one. But we're jumping all the way to the end on this one. Uh, tell the people what to expect from Saw 10 if they have not seen it yet. Honestly, expect the unexpected, but also expect what you'd want to expect. Um, it is your classic Saw film. It takes place in between Saws 1 and 2. In it, you do see our... Hail Mary John Kramer, a.k.a. the Jigsaw Killer, um, dealing with his terminal brain cancer. Uh, You see him going to support groups and finding some miracle cure that he comes across from one of his support group friends, Henry Kessler. We finally get a location in a Saw film, which they haven't done in the first however many films we've had now. Uh, And we finally see John traveling to Mexico City 
for essentially a new lease on life. And he runs into Cecilia Peterson, who is going to be his end-all, be-all doctor to cure himself of cancer. And as we all know, life just doesn't work out that way. And we end up seeing Cecilia and her team of people, uh, the next victims of Jigsaw's Traps. This is officially the highest rated Saw movie. And I want to know how that stands with you. I wouldn't go to say the highest rating, in my opinion. Obviously, nothing beats the first movie. That's You just can't beat the bathroom. I would rank it, rank it up there, uh, especially probably in my top three, top four. You definitely feel like you're watching an old Saw film, but at the same time, I just feel like there's more backstory than there are traps, which you really haven't seen in a Saw film up until probably Jigsaw. I enjoyed it. I I definitely felt some bit of nostalgia there. You see Shawnee Smith reprise her role as Amanda Young. I definitely enjoyed seeing her reprise the role, and it was nice to see some sort of backstory again to Amanda and kind of see her deal with the moral dilemma of living or dying, kind of kind of having to deal with that evil entity within her, but also seeing another person in the trap go through what she went through with her addiction as well. In our conversations about Saw, you've always kind of gone back to that it is more than just torture porn, that there is a lot more visceral conflict beneath the surface. Did you feel that within here or was it more just leading into the traps? Honestly, a little bit of both. Um, well, you that def- sounds like a great balance. Yeah, you definitely see John kind of deal with his moral dilemma. Small spoiler, I would say. Um, you do see John end up end up in one of his own traps for the first time. Um, and that's something that you've never seen within the first, within any movie in the franchise. You've never seen John end up in a trap himself. Um, and he just refuses to pull the lever to start the trap because he says, I'm not the one responsible for these people's deaths. I am here to test their willpower. They want to live if they want to continue on with their life or if they just want to give up. It's it's beautiful in a way, too. The first half of the movie, you definitely start to root for John a little bit within his cancer journey. Um, I fully did not expect to cry in the theater. I did not expect to cry in a Saw movie, let alone over right. John Kerr. But Tobin Bell's performance was just spectacular. He Is made this his best performance in the Saw movie? Best performance? I would say it's up there. I don't really know. You can't really compare it to, Saw, to the first Saw movie because he's spoiler he's laying there the whole time so he doesn't really do much (laughs) um movie's 20 years old at this point i think we can yeah uh he gives such a spectacular performance he comes back into the role of john kramer so beautifully it's like he never left is scotty smith any good because i know i've seen some controversy about her trying to play 20 years younger definitely it was hard kind of obviously 20 years you're gonna go through aging and I do know within the filming of Saw, of the second Saw installment, um, she was pregnant. So she has had some kids and she has had some aging. You definitely notice it. Her performance is still spectacular as well. It was nice seeing more of a backstory of Amanda. Um, and especially before Amanda goes haywire in the next few Saw installments. So it's nice to kind of see Amanda a little more tamer in her ways. I have only seen the first Saw movie in full, partly because of you and our friend group who sat me down and made me watch it. Um, and so I only know a lot of the 
you know, the subtextual arguments from the conversations that we've had. And I'm curious because, you know, I've heard people talk about like the medical scam text that becomes part of the movie. I've heard people talk about, you know, the idea of classism becomes represented in this, but I don't recognize that from the initial movies because I just don't have the experience of it. Does the fact that that becomes so blatant in here take away from the shock entertainment that the, that the franchise has built itself up on or does it not enhance it to you? I never honestly thought about that. Like, John obviously tests anybody and everybody in his traps. He's going to test doctors. He's going to test uh, people with substance abuse. He's going to test people who have done others dirty. He's going to test people of all class levels and all economic standpoints. He's going to test whoever he feels doesn't feel like they want to live or they're throwing their life away, which I feel like you get that at, at any point of life or any point of living. Um I don't think it took away, personally. Um, I just think it's been such a underlying theme and underlying tone within the Saw movies that it's just another point to the movie. Not having James Wan, having Lee Wan L, having uh, not having Carrie Ellis, they're like that core team that made the first one so special. Being so removed from that, do you still feel like this franchise has the lifeblood in it? I definitely think so. Um They've definitely introduced so many apprentices throughout the years that at this rate, it's kind of hard to pick who is the next apprentice or who is. And minor spoiler, but even talked to Brandon about this. The Saw account did post this yesterday. Um, we do see the reveal in the post credit scene of Detective Hoffman, who, if you know anything about Saw, becomes the main apprentice between Saw's four through about six. Um, he's running the show, so it's nice to see him come back. It's definitely, in my opinion, it could give some more leeway. And they did also kind of give a little teaser to the point that they might be writing Saw 11 already. So I'm hoping Saw 11 kind of deals with Hoffman going through his journey as an apprentice. But they do also, he does ultimately kind of end, end with his demise with Carrie Ellis's character coming back being like nope I'm the apprentice so there's a lot to be discovered within Hoffman's backstory that I hope they go more into context with not having that I guess quote-unquote core group it's inevitable there's so many characters that come and go within Saw that it's like the next class that keeps coming I feel like the the traps in this movie I think they were beautifully done I wish that we had more to give Something that I caught on in this movie was that there was no opening trap. Basically, the first half of the movie was just John Kramer's journey with a flashback, quote-unquote, to the trap with the eye vacuum, which you see in all the posters and movie posters that are out. That was a major standout to me that they did not open with a trap. Spiral opened with a trap, which we don't talk about Spiral. They tried new things. I just feel like it was a major miss. Do I appreciate it? Yes. The opening trap was spectacular in Spiral. Everything else just didn't really, didn't really hit well with me. But they did not open up with a trap in this one, which was very fascinating. Um, we did have John Kramer in this movie, and we did not hear him say game over unless I completely missed that. It's such an iconic line for him to say, or for his apprentices to say at the end of the traps, when you get the whole... Uh, twist plot happening he never said that when the twist happened all you see is him amanda and the child carlos walk out 
into Mexico's uh, lovely Mexico-filtered uh, sunlight. The production of Saw is so notorious with their green and blue and their cool tone lighting that you see John go to Mexico and it's this beautiful warm wash. You always see it in the movies of we're going to Mexico and it's so warm washed, warm tone that it's just so overdone. It was a beautiful contrast. As a lighting designer, it was a beautiful contrast to the cool tones of the traps, but like it's just so overdone, but it it was hilarious. (laughs) Be like, we're doing this in 2023. Great, cool. Mexico filter. It sounds like it's a bit of Force Awakens syndrome where it's boiling everything down to its most core components in, in regards to getting away from the gimmicks of it all. Yeah, it was not as gimmicky as the the last few movies have been, which, again, is pretty pretty humbling when you think that it's in between one and two. And in this case, Jigsaw might be kind of experimenting with a few things, which you kind of see in the traps. Um, the traps themselves were... I think they were pretty self-explanatory and people I've been seeing people complain about the amount of time he gave everybody to complete the traps that it wasn't enough time but if you go back saw 3 I believe some guy had a minute to take rings out of his body they had more than enough time in my opinion one of them I guess like again spoilers <laughs> at this point you already talked about the post credit scene I put it in the description okay um We do see Valentina almost complete her trap. She almost completed it, but it's just, you see everybody just kind of taking the first half, minute and a half of their time just to figure out what in the world is going on here. Um, So she almost did make it. The props to her. Um, That's good. Yeah, and unfortunately, we have to deal with Cecilia. Beautifully done character. Um... It's just very refreshing, honestly, to see someone else take a turn as a bad guy, quote-unquote, in the Saw franchise that's against Jigsaw. Not match with him wittingly, but almost morality-wise. She goes head-to-head with Jigsaw, which is something that he's never had to deal with before if mm. you're not a police officer. In hindsight, yeah, it's is refreshing. We also see a kid in in the trap as well. I feel like that offers, again, more of like, a visceral newness to the franchise of just the idea of, yeah, you thought we'd done everything. How about we screw over kids? Yeah, and it, it had to do in the hands of Cecilia, who tests John's, uh, I guess, John's moral values and puts John and this kid in a trap together. And it's it's so beautifully done because you see John take the brunt of this trap for himself to save the kid. It's beautiful when you look at it and you're like, Jigsaw Killer is essentially harming himself to save a kid mind you it is an innocent person which he does mention he's not going to do anything to an innocent person which also goes back to the morals of saw in itself that it's not just gruesome or some people might say torture porn but it goes back to the values of you're taking people at their lowest and you're seeing if they are hitting rock bottom or if they want to escape rock bottom and float to the top final thoughts and you're rating on a 10 if you can I think it is a beautiful comeback to the Saw franchise. I look forward to what might come within Saw 11, Saw 12, whatever they might make of this this wonderful comeback. Um, I think it is, it's stunning, it's visually appealing, and it takes you back to the older days in a modern twist. I would rate it 8 out of 10. 
I think everybody should see it regardless if you like it or hate it. And definitely stay till the end for the post credit scene. Dylan Roth from Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe? How are you today? Nothing I love more than being on other people's podcasts. It's so much less work than being on my own podcast. Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese, is admittedly trying a lot of new things to try here. And I think for better or worse, it's fascinating to witness. I was wondering from your perspective, because there's been so much buzz about this, let alone just the fact that Marty himself has had to go into this essentially promotion cycle with not a lot of help, basically, because of the writers and actors strikes at the time. I'm wondering how high was your excitement? indisputably one of the most important American filmmakers of the 20th century has done a lot of work that is like, he's like one of those uh, filmmakers that we, we don't have a lot of in our generation, which are like respected sort of like auteurs and like art house directors, but they work in studios and they have big budgets. I'm not one of those people who likes to like tout, like says like cinema and movies or film or whatever, different terms, but you know what I mean? Where it's like grown up movies. And I say this as someone who seen every Marvel movie and who, you know, loves, loves a good star war and blah, blah, blah. But like, I know I'm, I am, I'm always excited when you give uh, a filmmaker who's going to be trying to make uh, an, an ambitious adult drama, historical drama, give them $200 million and in your Apple kind of not care whether you make it back, right? It's a matter of we want to say we produced Martin Scorsese's big movie. We're going to be Oscar players. We've already got a best picture under our belt, but no one takes Coda very seriously. So this is the real one. I also don't think that it's that unusual for him to to tackle a story that has to do with the intersection of the american dream and terrible atrocities murder and and death and just like uh almost all of his biggest movies are crime stories uh and a lot of them are like sort of uh, crime stories that are built around like ethnicity and tribalism right you have obviously goodfellas is an italian american story gangs in new york has that element the departed has that element um and you know, uh, there's that problem where I, I think that there is a degree to which I think that a lot of viewers who are very vocal online mistake his depiction for endorsement a lot. There's the famous misinterpretations of The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, and I don't think the director is like completely not responsible for their work being um, being misinterpreted. But I, I think that there's. I, I didn't have any reason to be to raise an eyebrow exactly, especially since so much of the like festival season promotion was talking about how closely he worked with Osage cast and crew. Uh, granted, that was in the promotional cycle of a movie. It's their job to talk about why the movie's going to be good, why it's going to work, why it's good representation. So my general feeling was to was optimism, was excitement. I wanted to see what was what was coming. Did you have any experience with the book? No, I can't read. <laughs> no, I I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't I don't read a lot. I'm I, I I would love to watch a documentary based on the film, but I just also dedicated three hours and 20 minutes to the story on screen. So probably in my future is a 20 to 40 minute video on YouTube of what was and was not fabricated for the film, as is the case for any historical adaptation. Yeah, I watched the uh, the CBS Sunday morning piece on the book, which I felt was pretty good condensation of what needed to be said about it. It's funny because, of course, we bring up the runtime as we must with modern Scorsese movies. I invested six hours and 40 minutes into this because I've seen it twice. Uh-huh. Um, and the thing about it is, like, I am a Martin Scorsese fan, and I admire him in so much more in just the past number of years, just as my film palette has developed and as I've revisited things like Gangs of New York, uh, like Hugo, which I think is freaking tremendous. 
um, you know, as I've gone back and watched Taxi Driver, and like, again, his legacy is well cemented. He doesn't need, you know, two guys like us starting to prop him up anymore than he does. But I was, again, curious just from the early reactions I had heard, just from the source material involved. And I think for the most part, he pulls it off pretty well. This is staggeringly good at times, uh, if not flawed at certain points. But I think there's a beauty in where its flaws lie. Uh, in other words, it's not, I don't think, going to make my top five of the year, but I think it's pretty solidified in my top ten. It's definitely in mine. I've currently, you know, I keep my running letterbox list and my, you know, like my my armchair Oscar nominations on my Excel sheets and whatnot. And this is a high scorer for me. I I really uh, I got very sucked into this. Uh, I think for I think for a uh, two hundred minute movie, I think it really moves. Uh, and to me, I I think that it it walks such this incredible tightrope. In my opinion, and of course, I'm just, just another white guy on the internet. So I'm not meaning to discount or dismiss the criticisms that have been placed, particularly by Native people. Uh, but I think that it's a really interesting uh, portrait of the sort of the sense that one has as a white person, uh, particularly at that time, but on and through our lifetimes, uh, that you're going to get away with it. Uh, there's never any point in this story when it looks as if Ernest and company aren't going to succeed at stealing this land and murdering these people, uh, they have complete impunity. It's just a matter of figuring out what kinds of loopholes they have to uh, either exploit or avoid. Uh, there's that scene which, like, for better or worse, is, a, is like a laugh line where that guy is at, at, with his lawyer asking whether or not he can kill his uh, his spouse's children from another father. Um, and, the both times I saw it, and I was like, I don't like that I'm laughing at this, but I know yeah, what it's supposed to do. Th- that's the thing. It's, it is so trivial to them, the lives of these people who they've come here to rob. And it's it's a long con. We're talking about it's almost it feels uh, like it's meant to mirror the the century long theft of this country, right, where it's just all these little deals that they would then renege on or they would find a way to uh, to not to, to live up to the letter, but not the spirit or just ignore. Right. It's tricky because while I totally understand the criticism that it's not portrayed as the story of the Osage. It is really through the perspective of, for the most part, of Ernest and and the rest of the white guys who are murdering them and taking their stuff and their land and their lives. Um, it is, I think, as important as it is to have positive depictions and depictions, depictions with agency of all kinds of people, I think there's a degree to which it's important for white people to see their own inhumanity throughout history. Uh, I, I think that there's... I think about this like uh, as well. Like I'll like I'll, I'll stand in front of like Alex Garland's Men, which I think got oh, some criticism okay. for being like like who is this for? It's just another guy talking about feminism. Like yeah, but y- you know the patriarchy is is a male problem. Uh, men are at fault, and men need to acknowledge and and adjust their behavior. And the same thing is true of white supremacy. You can fight white supremacy from any angle, but the people who have to change is are white people. The idea of sometimes you need a mirror, sometimes you need a window. Exactly. And so I thought that this was a valuable mirror in that sense for me sitting there. Like, obviously, I'm somebody who's looking for it. I try to be socially conscious, aware of my privilege and, and at, at all times, and I try to be very open to listening to as many different viewpoints uh, as possible that 
maybe are not very flattering to where I come from or the advantages that I've had in life. I think it's really unfair to cast Scorsese as acting in bad faith or I, out I don't of, think he is at all. Yeah. Or, or to decide that the, he doesn't have the right to tell this story the way he does. Again, it's not up to me to make those decisions for other people. I don't know. I, I, and I kind of respect, even though it's like a, maybe a little bit of a cringe move, a little bit weird that he literally steps in front of the camera and delivers the final words as himself as to say, if you're going to get mad, get mad at me. Yeah, slight spoiler, the ending of this, I think, is freaking phenomenal, actually. It didn't hit me the first time. I was like, this is very strange. And the second time around, I was like, no, I, I see what you're doing. It speaks directly to who gets to tell the story. I don't even know that I love it as a choice, but I really respect what a choice it is, if you know what I'm yeah. saying. And it is the last thing that you would expect in this, but it feels, again, so gripping and natural to that kind of roller coaster the movie has been taking you on. If we're talking about the agency of the native characters, I do, and again, this is, again, smaller spoiler, but I won't go into huge detail, but the last thing we see of Molly's character is her walking away from something important of her own agency, which I think a lot of the movie, for whatever terrible things are done to her, and there are truly awful things done to her and her family and her people, but I do like that the last moment we see of our pivotal Native American um, like focal point of the movie is her leaving a thing on her own terms and showing us that, like, Yes, pe these people went on, they lived, they did their own lives. I think that that Molly as a character, for whatever sort of indignities that she suffers, actually never really loses her dignity at all. I, I think that yeah. she's, my memory of her is of someone who is strong and composed and who is dealing with impossible circumstances. As much as it would be cool to, you know, be able to see her, maybe to like reframe this as like a mystery and she's solving it, right? right? Um, my friend Dom Griffin, who is the host of the Armchair Auteur and your favorite, your fave film critic, uh, is a, a YouTuber podcaster and the critic for Boston, uh, for Baltimore Beat, uh, made the point where like, what happened though? Is it, is it, does it take away from her story or become disingenuous if you try to create a more palatable version of the story to try and serve the character instead of the history? Ernest is a perfect reflection of that. And Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in particular, where you have to identify with Ernest to a certain degree. Like, I think Scorsese is asking us to sympathize with his ignorance or his simplicity, whichever version of that you want to go with. But at the end of the day, he does these terrible things out of his own accord, and he rarely questions it until the entire weight of the system is brought on top of him. And as he says, the women are gone, the money is gone, the simple, again, hyper... Um, hyper-objective things that he values are taken away from him. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, he he. This is what I, what I what I think of as as uh, Leo's Joaquin Phoenix performance, where he's playing a guy who's very obviously yeah. like he he reads so much younger. I'm thinking about Joaquin Phoenix in like The Master or like Joker, where you could you could cast an actor 20 years younger. And it would almost make more sense. Like you would think, oh, okay, here's somebody who's naive and foolish. It's like, no, you know, he just sucks. The thing about him is he just sucks. He doesn't have, there's no excuse for that, how much he sucks, but you're kind of looking for one. Cause you're like, okay, yeah. he doesn't seem like he's all there. What's, what is this guy's deal? No, the, his deal is that he sucks. Yeah. Uh, and you search for that humanity in him and he searches for it occasionally. There's, there's the scene with the poison. Um, which I think is the the most overt attempt to demonstrate that he has some remorse, but not enough, uh, not nearly enough. It doesn't change anything. So, and Again, you can say, to, 
but sorry, going back to your point about the idea of like what people needing a mirror up to themselves, it goes to the idea of like, yes, maybe you do have some care and some compassion for marginalized communities who may be incredibly, maybe the most important people in your lives. But if you don't take it that step further, it almost means nothing. You can say you feel bad about something as much as you want, or in his case, not even say it. Just like feel it and demonstrate it to himself as to say, yes, no, no, it's okay. I'm a human being. This isn't, this isn't all fun and games for me, but if it doesn't actually impact your choices and how you interact with people, um, then it's not, it's not worth anything. It doesn't, it doesn't make you better in a way. It sort of makes you worse because then, because you do know better. And I think that that part of what that's about is to dispel the idea. You know, we talk about trying not to judge people by modern ethical standards or whatever. There's absolutely no way to say they didn't know better. They didn't know, like, like, oh, you know, you know, they were, you could say, oh, they weren't raised to think of so and so as people, which is an excuse you get a lot when you try to excuse horrible acts of racism in in history Um, or, you know, misogyny, any kinds of bigotry. It's like, oh, well, they're a product of their environment. There's absolutely no way you can be in their position and not know what you're doing is horribly wrong. I feel like it's it's impossible as a, a being with empathy not to, you know, go through if you're going through all this effort and you're, you're committing what you know is, you know, a complicated long con that's going to cost X number of lives. And he knows he knows that he's doing something evil. But instead of not doing it, he just decides I'll punish myself this much, just just a little bit so that I know that I'm a good person. I think that's a really interesting study in evil. I think it's a really interesting study in sort of like socially acceptable evils because in his circle, what he's doing is considered cunning and clever and smart and may, or maybe even like in, in a weird way, like righteous, right? right. Uh, you know, it's, I think, I think there's so much to it. And I think it's a mistake to dismiss, not that, Obviously, not that you are, but, you know, you see some of the online discourse, the idea of reasons not to see it. And obviously, no one has to see what they don't want to see, or if it's just going to be too unsettling to see this piece of history, especially if it reflects on on them, the story of their ancestors or their people, or or just in general, just like painful. The idea that a lot of people who I strongly suspect have never seen either this or any Martin Scorsese movie um, are treating it as if it's apologia. For genocide, that makes no sense to me. It's not really, and I kind of want to take that towards how Scorsese and um, uh, and Thelma Schumacher and Roger and the whole like tech team build out this world because it is not just you know I've heard some people be like, oh, you could put an hour, and I don't think you could. I think the beauty of something like Jack Fist, the production design in this, is that you see the beauty and the eccentricity and the uniqueness of what the Osteos created at a time where. Yes, it is very much based in, you know, white-centered beauty standards and technology and all that, but, like, they're making it their own. Like, there's never a moment – there's never a moment where you don't feel like the Osage Nation is a completely lived-in place. So not only when, you know, Hale and Burkhardt and their gang and everything, when they all do the terrible things, it isn't just affecting the people. It's affecting the things they built, the places they've settled, because they've lived in for hundreds of years – and all of that culture is diminished as well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword where, like, you start to see the cracks in it with, you know, uh, you know, the car designs and, like, clothing and everything. But then even more so, you get the idea that this is more than just a couple of murders that the burgeoning FBI has to investigate. This is the elimination of an entire people that is being treated for as, you know, as you said, giggles. It's not the kind of move that they could have shot on the old West set. 
right? Just, right. just on the back lot. It is, and that's important. Um, not having gotten, not having seen it a second time, not having had my notebook out, I, I don't know that I can speak in as much detail about the production design. Um, but I, I do really admire the way that the money's on the screen. I don't necessarily know if it had to be $200 million because I don't know what every dime of the budget was exactly. going to. Um, but it, but it certainly looks that way when you see the scale of it all, when you see, again, the different settings, when you see, you know, the, the intricacies of Osage architecture melding with, you know, 1900s Americano, when you see all of that displayed, you know, let alone the costumes or the actual just visual style of the cameras, it all adds up to something that Again, I hate to use this word, but it feels epic. It feels like an American epic that he's actually in the vein of something like Games of New York, which I just saw recently for the first time. And while I think this is a much better film than that, I think they both have very similar parallels in how they see their settings and how they utilize those. Yeah, I mean, you could almost say New York is a character in that film. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> the, um, that brings us back around to the way that I think that this... I feel like there was a temptation to to discuss this as if it's something that's like new or different for the Scorsese oeuvre. It's it's really I really don't think it is. I think it's really a piece with what he has to say about like sort of all of his American crime stories, which is that these are all stories about people or groups of people who have decided for one reason or another that they are the underdogs and therefore they're allowed to do whatever they want. Uh, and in this case, it's the most blatantly false, right? We're talking about, they never say it like this, but I feel like there's a certain subtext, especially considering the very messed up rhetoric you'll hear from, uh, the far right today in America, um, of the idea that being like, oh, no, we're the underclass. We're the oppressed ones here. And so we are going to, you know, we're going to stick it to them. Um, in this case, the, um, that they're sticking it to is a group of people that have been, um, just like gradually exterminated uh, for your benefit. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's going to stand on the shelf with certainly with gangs of New York um, as just like this, this sort of ambitious and thought provoking and unsettling look at a history that uh, whatever your relationship to being American is, is part of our history it's nasty as hell and that is kind of again going back to games new york comparison which is just uh, for me it's just the obvious comparison but like the thing that always i won't say always because i just really just saw it like two weeks ago i think the thing that drove me a little bit up the wall about that movie is how inconsistently it can feel paced it can feel like it's kind of just hopping from one thing back and forth whereas this while i do have issues with some of the pacing in the very middle until like the court drama just completely switches up the whole narrative of it all i like the idea that it does feel like a historical tapestry like yes this thing led to this and this thing led to this and that character did that but it does feel cohesive to the tone that scorsese is setting it doesn't feel like hey go do this mission thing all right come back and i'll do this thing it feels much more like no these characters would do this thing that would have consequences that they would then have to address and that is really, really difficult to do with a movie this long. So I, I got to give praise to Thomas Schumacher for just editing the cut of this movie to make it flow as well as it does. Oh, always. This will be her, her best turn to Oscar yet. I mean, I hope so, yeah. Oppenheimer is going to be a, another big fave in that category because that's a that's impressive on a whole different level. I think we're looking at a very interesting award season. <laughs> and that was before Doom got pushed back. Yes, 
Dune is going to be uh, uh, alone on the mountain in 2024. I I don't know what it's even going to look like. I have not gotten a too deep look at 2024 films because I just haven't had the time, but I, I would have a very hard time not believing it's on that top mountain with <laughs> categories again. Minus a Spielberg, it's so stacked, it's unreal. Everybody had something out this year, and I know that some of that had to, a lot of that has to do with, with the COVID creep of it all. Right. Uh, it is crazy to uh, imagine that we don't know how many more of these Marty has in him. Yeah, uh, he, there was that very, very thought-provoking and, like, intimate Vanity Fair profile that happened this year oh. where he really got into uh, what age is like from his perspective, and he's pitching fastballs to yeah. this day. But it's going to suck when he's gone, and the number one thing I can think of is all of the stupid posts that are going to that are going to circulate from, like... And again, I say this as somebody who enjoys a good superhero movie right. from the category of Marvel fan who has painted him as like the devil. Uh, they will celebrate his death. Uh, and I will try to maintain a healthy uh, blood pressure. Before we delve completely into Rage D, because I will absolutely dive into this with you. Um, <laughs> Are there any other smaller details you want to point out before we wrap this up? Because I have a couple that I want to point out. One being some of the supporting players who I do not think are getting as much buzz. Um, I think Tentu Cardinal, as Molly's mother, has, I think, the same poise that she has. Again, I, I knew the name Tentu Cardinal from a couple other things. I just couldn't put two and two together. But, like, you know, spoiler, her last scene, I think, is a phenomenal piece of silent, uh, of silent acting that I just think... Again, has all the poise and necessity you have, but also like a degree of fear that has been driven into that character throughout the movie. Uh, I also want to quickly bring up what is her name? Uh, Cara Jade Myers as Anna, who is so fun and is a complete firebrand during the moments that she has to be. She kind of like injects a like fierceness and bit of humor into the movie when it almost doesn't require it, but we're glad that it's there. And I also want to quickly bring up someone who I was fascinated was going to be in this movie, Jason Isbell, who yeah. I love. I love as a musician. I was like, why is he in this? And the more and more hip hopping up in the movie, I'm like, you're holding your own against Leonardo DiCaprio. Should I, should I be listening to you for more and things? He's pretty good in this. I did not know he was in it until I saw his face. I'm like, is that Jason Isbell? Uh, we're, we're seeing, um, what's his name? What is the name of the country musician who often wears the stuff on his face? And now he's showing up in a lot of stuff like David Gordon Green projects. Sturgill Simpson. That's what Stur- oh, Sturgill Simpson. Okay. We're seeing Sturgill Simpson stuff. Now Jason Isbell's getting involved. Um, yeah, the creator. Yes. You know, I, I guess it's, it's the season for, for country, for alt country stars to start making major motion pictures. Give me Katie Pruitt in movies. I don't know if she wants to act, but like, <laughs> I want it. Um, and I also quickly, speaking of music, I want to quickly talk about Robbie Robertson, who yeah. is, of course, um, of Six Nations descent. He is, uh, he is of Native American descent. Um, and this was an incredibly important movie to him, as his family has pointed out. I think the score freaking rules. I love the baseline motif in this. I love the use of steel guitars. Again, I'm, I'm a total score nerd, so I go bonkers about this stuff. Oh, I'm with you. Um, but I love how his score is utilized, and I totally get the the scale of it. I get the uh, the different directions he was taking with it. It's Again, it's maybe not my number one of the year, but it's in my top five. Like, I just think it's so immaculately used. And I think it would make, uh, both that, I would make that, well, I think it would make that long-term relationship between Martin and Robbie really more than it already has. Oh, yeah. And like, it's also the kind of thing that 
I feel stupid the way I frequently end up just reframing things into talking about, like, unfortunately, I'm still programmed to think of the Academy Awards as the Super Bowl of movies, which it should not. We should. But we 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 should probably stop doing that. But like I think about like, oh, well, what a what a button, you know, you know, we're to to honor the great Robbie Robertson uh, after his death with with an Academy Award. But. Unfortunately, uh, I am so stuck on Daniel Pemberton's Across the Spider-Verse score uh, and all of the incredible uh, artistic and technical achievements involved there that I feel like I'll actually be mad <laughs> if Robbie Robertson wins because uh, they snubbed they snub Pemberton last time. It's, it's you got to give some respect. You, again, I, I slight tangent. You can't listen to those first five minutes of Across the Spider-Verse and not say that's not a Academy Award. <laughs> yeah, I got to interview Daniel Pemberton. He did a live performance with orchestra, a live screening with live orchestra of uh, Into the Spider-Verse in the beginning of the year uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, so I got to interview him ahead of that. Uh, and he talked about making the score and like translating it into like a, like a live performance that you could actually do along with the film and teased some stuff about the next score. And then it could be over delivered. It's, it's so cool. The idea that each of these individual palettes has something interesting and like inventive about it. And then he's cross pollinating them. If the Oscars biggest like sort of lame stereotype is their desire to award most acting or most directing over best acting and best directing, give Daniel Pemberton the Oscar for bet for most score. Obviously, I won't actually be that mad if Robbie Robertson. I'm, I'm, a, I'm I was raised on the band. Would love to 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 see that respect, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I guess with that, we'll go into ratings. Uh, Dylan, do you want to start us off with uh, rating out of ten or whichever rating you prefer? I kind of lean that towards the guest. I try to force myself to rate things as I, I like I'll do my letterbox reviews or whatever. And based on that, I gave it a four and a half out of five, which means I have to give it a nine out of 10. That's, that's just math. Okay. It's hard. I can go with an eight. I can go with a nine. It, it, there's a certain amount of recency bias. I'm very fond of it. And I will also go out a nine out of 10. I think this is again for the, the smaller nitpick that I do have with it. I do think it drags a little bit in the middle. I do wish some of the Native American characters had gotten somewhat more agency at certain key points. I think what it's trying to do, I certainly am, I won't say okay with it, but I understand the decision behind it. But on a, on a macro level, I completely was, again, as we said at the very beginning of this, invested. I was never, I was never bored by any of it. I was always fascinated to see what the next, uh, what the next stone unturned would be in, again, like the pool, the discussed pool of what was being overturned from this. It is a, again, chapter in American history that is pivotal and that is often misunderstood or often misrepresented. And I think whatever you want to say about Scorsese, I think just at the end of the day, he has crafted something that is, again, lived in and expansive, but to all the right degrees that gives, again, DiCaprio, De Niro, Gladstone, really meaty, in-depth characters to play with. And the performers themselves really get a chance to shine and carry the entire story with them. The technical crowd behind them is obviously doing the hugest of work between score, the editing, I think at the end of the day, just the sheer ambition of it all might be a little too much for some people. But I think if you are all willing to experience it, let alone in a theater, but at very least on Apple TV, I think it is, I was, I think it was truly worth a watch. And I think you owe it to yourself to see it before the end of the year. Danielle Bokenkamp is here to talk the Marvels with us. Danielle, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, the Marvels has been getting a lot of reactions, some good, some bad, some that I think are just plain nonsense. Um, but I wanted you specifically on here for a pretty personal reason, because fourth wall break 
when Danielle and I first met, one of the things that we initially talked about was how much we both liked the original Captain Marvel film. And so I wanted to start off with that going way back to 2019 when you were first uh, when you were first shown the movie on that. And now we're four years later and seeing the Marvels as something that is, I think, in an objective state, a pretty objectively different thing than just the first Captain Marvel movie. I'm wondering what your expectations were given all of the delays, all the stuff we've been hearing about, and then all just the narrative stuff, whether it's the inclusion of Amon Vellani, of Tayana Paris, all this stuff from WandaVision as Marvel, all of that coming into what the first movie was. I'm wondering if you can speak on what your expectations were going in. I was a little unsure what to expect because I did love Captain Marvel. And I was seeing a lot of reviews that it was bad and a lot of people like just saying a lot of stuff that I, spoiler alert, don't agree with. But um, that was before I saw it, so I didn't know. And I also, at the same time, was taking that with a grain of salt because I know that a lot of those same criticisms were made of Captain Marvel, which I loved. And so I was a little bit scared that I wouldn't like it. But I also was just kind of kept in mind that, like, I I probably would end up liking it because I think a lot of those criticisms are just going to continue. Does it have to do with the fact that it's led by three women and two of them are people of color? I don't know. Maybe. As a fan explicitly of Miss Marvel and basically going on to anything Amon Vellani does from this point on, or onward, I was just like, yeah, fantastic. I will take anything she does. Oh, it's a Captain Marvel sequel. Perfect. But I'll admit I was a little bit worried because from that first Captain Marvel, I was a little bit worried that um, Fleck and uh, Bowden and Fleck, that they weren't coming back to direct. I really liked the style they were imbuing that first movie with. I felt like there were these kind of, there were these dramatic overtones. There were like these indie movie kind of undercurrents to how the film was structured, how the cam work was kind of going. And I was worried that the Marvels would be going for more like, oh, people didn't like that. Let's be like, you know, Thor Ragnarok can go totally over the top and big fun with all that stuff. And I was worried about that, but I came out of it liking a lot of it. And I I do share some criticisms. I don't think it's necessarily the most daring thing that Marvel has ever made. I don't think it was meant to be. But I do think it's getting a lot more criticism heaped onto it than I think it frankly deserves. Yeah, I completely agree. I also will say that um, I forgot to mention the other people in the movie. I, I love WandaVision and I love Monica, mm-hmm. so I was excited to see her. I did not get around to seeing Miss Marvel before I saw the movie, actually. Oh. I I know, I know. I didn't get around to it, and I tried, but I just couldn't. And so I wasn't sure what to expect with her, but I pretty much only heard good things about that show. So um, prior to the bad reviews, I was excited. I was a little bit hesitant bef- like once we got those. But yeah, I agree. It's not the best Marvel movie I've ever seen, but overall, I had positive feelings about it, and I think it's getting way too much hate. The perfect place to start with that is, I think, the thing where everyone can unanimously agree is great, which is Brie Larson and Tiana Paris and Amon Bellani, who I think really do, in very unique ways, deliver a lot of the movie's pathos, a lot of its characterization, a lot of its most fun elements that I say, as a fan of the first Captain Marvel, I do still think that movie is pretty good. But admittedly, that movie was trying for a bit more shrouded in its emotional overcurrents. I think it was trying to be a bit more subdued, which I really respect but I think turned a lot of people off the wrong way. And if this was the gear shift they were thinking of, I think they did a pretty good job with it because, again, Carol gets to be kind of a nerd in this, and I love getting to see her do that. I love getting to see Monica really stretch her uh, stretch her muscles as a scientist that we kind of got teased a little bit in WandaVision, but really got tossed over to certain other side characters. And Kamala, who 
I loved coming from Miss Marvel and seeing what her development was going to be is I think she has the most poignant arc of the entire movie, which is to reflect the kind of adult baggage and sensitivities that Carol and Monica don't really want to talk about. And I like that she is both our, you know, kind of our viewer point of view character, but also an intrinsically self-aware character in herself that has to come into those own uh, those own fallacies. And I think it's really interesting on top of her just being really damn funny and really being able to build off of the kind of dry humor that both of them are kind of trying to mask. Yeah, she did an amazing job of playing a fangirl. Um, I thought that that was, I, I saw some people saying that it was over the top. I thought it was very realistic and I thought it was really funny. And I think that, I mean, honestly, like the main way that I described this movie is just like fun and cute. And they were the heart of that, like seeing all of them interact with each other individual, like in individual pairs and also all together. I think that it added a lot to like, you could really see like their relationships and in particular the relationship between like um, Carol and Monica, like change throughout the movie. And I think that especially with like having such a short runtime, the fact that they were able to like really establish all of these characters together and how they interact with each other. I think they did a really good job with that. I think that goes into like the idea of the runtime, which is to me both a huge positive and also a pretty detrimental negative. And I can't decide which way I lean towards one way or the other. I love the fact that the first half of this movie, and I've seen it twice now, flies by. Like there's just no stopping that first like 40 to 45 minutes of the movie. It's basically like five minutes of, uh, of kind of setup and then just go, go, go. Oh God, what's going on? Oh, new thing. Oh, cool thing. And for me, as someone who is completely entrenched in this stuff, I had a freaking time with that because I was just left to not question any of it, just kind of go along like, this is weird sci-fi from filmmakers who like weird sci-fi and are allowed to make it and actually has characters who will get to evolve and kind of experience that both as themselves and the weirdness that the audience would as well. And I love the pacing of that. And then you get to the second half where things kind of have to resolve themselves. And I felt myself more going, this is where some of the baggage of the MCU starts to catch up a little bit. This is where some of the maybe shortcomings of the writing in the first movie and the first half of the Marvels kind of start to catch up with it. Not that it necessarily ruins the movie. I think it ends on a pretty good note, all things considered. But it is one of those things where it feels like a runner who is just doing fantastic in that first half of the race. And then by a certain point, you're like, how much juice do they actually have left? Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, like there, there's the common criticism that Marvel movies and movies in general are getting way too long. People don't want to sit through a three hour movie. And then movies come out that are shorter. And I feel like a lot of the time, especially with Marvel movies, they end up getting the criticism that they were too short. I had that same criticism for like Multiverse of Madness, for instance. I think it was, I think it would have benefited from a longer run, run time. This one, I do agree with what you're saying, but I really wasn't bothered by the runtime. Um, and also at the beginning of it being fast, it wasn't like Multiverse of Madness where I was like a little bit like uh, disoriented by that. I thought that like, it went right into it, but in a way that wasn't jarring. And so I, I think that while they could have benefited maybe from like a little bit longer runtime, I, I'm not super, I don't know, that, that's not a major criticism of mine. Yeah, I think if you, you know, if you really want to dive into like the world building and the canon of it, you could make an argument that perhaps the reasons why, you know, Carol and Monica and Kamala are linked together that maybe gets a little bit too coincidental at certain points, like all the stuff with the bangle and, you know, you really do have to make some stretches by that point. But again, I think 
Nia DaCosta, who we have not mentioned on here as the director, and I think she does a very good job with this. I think what she and her screenwriters know about that is we can't rely on that too much. And I think that's where some of my detriments with the second half of the movie come in. But where I think the first half really shines is the idea of like, no, this is where Carol is. She's, you know, a space nomad trying to do the right thing. She's basically Doctor Who at this point. You know, uh, Monica is just trying to, you know, find a life for herself after the death of her mom. And Kamala is really trying desperately to come into her own identity from the show. If you have not seen the show, then you just know this is a kid who wants to be a superhero, who is, you know, overly enthusiastic as we all would. And those character arcs just completely train crash into one another. And then you're left with the stakes and the scale and the new worlds and all this other stuff. But it all feels, at least for my money, mostly uh, intuitive to like what you'd experience as an audience member. I'm not seeing enough love for Kamala's family because I loved the way that they, like every time they were on screen, I was smiling and laughing. It was just so seeing like they, how they relate to each other and like the way that they show concern for her. And also like, they're very funny. And like, I I just, I, I loved every scene that they were in. I will say Having now seen Blue Beetle, which we did not get to review on the show, I love the way, like, that is now the gold standard to me of superhero family dynamics, because I just feel like they're not only funny, but they're intrinsic and fully blown characters themselves. This one, by a certain point, like, with the whole stuff with the space station, I did kind of feel the thing of just like, all right, give the dad, like, a fire extinguisher so he has something to do, or, like, you know, let the mom try and talk about, like, the, the what's it called? Um, what is the goose called? I'm going to say the Florgan, but I don't know if that's exact. That's probably right. Some kind of made up word. Right. But like, you know, scenes like that where like at a certain point I did start feeling of you have these really fun characters who all have their own dynamics to them. And not just from, you know, someone like me who watched Miss Marvel, just as someone who watched the movie. Like this is a family who deeply care about each other, who have their own unique culture that is very much expressed through the movie and that all have their own. I won't say all. I think the brothers kind of sidelined for the most part, but like the parents at least have their own dynamics to them. And by a certain point, I did feel the movie kind of going. All right, just give him anything to do. Like, what's okay, sure, why not? Yeah, that is definitely fair. I do, I kind of want to ask you though, I wonder what you think about the villain because I've heard a lot of like mixed feelings about the villain. So I'm curious what your opinion is. The problem is, I just had to immediately look at my notes to remind myself of the name of the villain, which every time I've talked about the Marvels, I forget the name of the damn villain. Uh, Yeah, oh, I didn't say her name. (laughs) Yeah, Darben, played by Zolly Ashton, wife of Tom Hiddleston. The thing about Darben is that I like her up to a point. I don't mean like, oh, she's a likable character. I mean, like, I find her fascinating up to a point because I think for the majority of the movie, the it kind of builds her up as a necessary evil, quote unquote. And I kind of like that for a movie that feels so much like an interlude comic. And I say that in the best way. I don't mean that as like, oh, it's not like a main tentpole of the MCU. I don't mean that. I mean, it's a very fun interlude as comics often are. And I like the idea that this was a villain who comes about as a result of Carol's consequences, which she deliberately has to own up to in the movie. And then, you know, we kind of see their dynamic throughout. We see that Darben doesn't necessarily hate Carol. It's more of just like what she represents to the Kree, what she represents to her home and her people. And I really thought that was interesting up until, you know, spoiler, the point when she actually tries to flat out kill Carol towards the end. And I thought, okay, you're going for like a really complex nuanced portrait of a person not necessarily just a full-blown antagonist and i really respect that but you have to completely follow through with that so she almost worked for me and i do like zolly ashton's physicality and kind of 
you know, the mannerism that she's she's explicitly deriving from like Lee Pace from the Guardians movies, which is I like that connection back to it. But I think by the end of it, I felt myself going, you almost had it worked and you kind of passed it up to have like, you know, a big villain fight sequence. During that part where she like, you know, almost kills Carol, I remember being like, that doesn't doesn't really make sense because Carol just said that she was going to fix the problem for you. So what, like, you know, it, it didn't feel like super on track with what they were trying to set up for her as far as like a complex character rather than just like a antagonist who's just like like just vengeful and on some level i do understand some of the criticisms behind her like she's not necessarily the most charismatic villain in the world although she does have moments like when you know when the bangle first hits her like she has, she has the like almost the loki smirk and i was like ah, that's kind of fun um but there are I think there are too few of those to really latch on to her as like a charismatic figure. So you have to go off of the more uh, the more difficult characterization. And I think by a certain point, it just kind of dips off the radar. And I was kind of disappointed in that. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I do really like, though, the villain that they chose specifically because of what it means for Carol. Exactly yeah. like you said, that like this villain was created because of her own actions. And I like the very complicated relationship that she has with the Kree in general. Um, and the fact that like, you know, she, it, it's like an AI thing, right? Like she like got rid of this AI thing, but then like just kind of left them to suffer. And like, I, I like how, I like how the villain like represents that and really forced her to like, you know, face consequences of her actions. And I also like how that ties into her relationship with Monica. The Monica thing is really interesting because I think when we saw her in WandaVision, she did pretty much feel like a fully fleshed out, very mature character. And I think in this movie, we really get to see the baggage that WandaVision didn't have time to explore. And not just that with Carol, but also the very fun kind of, you know, aunt and niece relationship she kind of has with Kamala. Like, I love, again, the trifecta dynamic is the thing that saves this movie for me. And I think beyond the fact of like, you know, Carol being the reluctant mentor to Kamala, I think there's also a similar aspect of that with Monica being the idea of, you know, I think Monica having the relationship with the family that she does, I think is kind of important because I think they're looking at the two of them of like, oh, here's this woman who just kind of came crashing into our house and just kind of ran out and did all this stuff in Carol. And then also here's Monica, like an accomplished scientist. Maybe our daughter should like be looking up to her. And I kind of like that dual dynamic that uh, that especially the mother who I'm forgetting the actress who plays it, but she kind of plays up that angle of like, you kind of need both of them and I need to accept that. And I think that goes to the idea of Monica and Kamala being two very different people, but who really kind of need each other as much as Carol and Kamala need each other. I honestly didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. Another thing that I'm curious to know your thoughts on is the fact that the movie was pretty silly. Um, it's pretty my, silly. Here's what I think. I think that it was a little silly. And I also think that there have certainly been sillier Marvel movies and I am not seeing, I'm seeing more hate for this movie for being silly than I did for like Quantum Mania, which I think was objectively sillier. I think this movie was like, pre I was expecting it to be like really cringy, I guess, based on the reviews I was seeing and it really wasn't. I mean, yeah, this is not a Quantum Mania thing where like the big battle cry is I have holes. Exactly. Like, it, I mean, there were cats eating people and like there, there was like a, a, I think the line about the guy being bilingual because he can talk and not just sing. I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, that was so great. Like, the whole, here's the thing. 
I know I'm not trying to defend Marvel as like a bastion of creativity, which in some ways they are, but I, and I'm not going to necessarily put them on the pedestal. But like, I think that is an instance of, you know, DaCosta and Feige looking at it and just going like, we're in an intergalactic sci-fi movie. Let's be weird. You're sci-fi. You can do weird stuff, like have a planet where, yes, they somehow speak English, but they can also sing nonstop. And I love that. And even just, you know, I won't necessarily spoil it because I want you all to watch it, but the needle drop in the whole space station sequence is phenomenal and kooky and i love every second of it that was a really good one um and also like i think this kind of goes back to what you were saying before about how like the first captain marvel was like a little bit more serious and like i think that i i just feel like with this character like she really can't win among some of the fans because that was too serious and she's overpowered, whatever. And then in this movie, she has like a very serious obstacle that she's like trying to face that she's having a lot of trouble with. And also it's a lot funnier. Like it's, and you get to see like more of like more of her interactions with other people that are really silly. And that also is not good enough. So it just feels like a double-edged sword. I mean, there's the whole sequence with her and Fury in the station where like, he's basically whining like a teenager, but like, it's kind of endearing in a way. I don't really know why Fury is still here. Like, I get it, but I just feel like he is, he just kind of shows up in certain things and you're like, okay, there he is again. I like him with the characters in this movie. I like him with, like, Carol in particular, going back even to, like, the first Captain Marvel. Um, but just kind of in general, I'm like, why are we still doing this? Should we talk quickly about the ending? Yes. First of all, um, I love Kate Bishop. So I was very excited to see her. Also, sorry, a side note real quick, though. Valkyrie? Was not expecting to see her in this movie. That was a great surprise. Um, didn't and, do a whole lot, but I and, loved it. And who may or may not be in a relationship with you know who? Yes, that was that was beautiful. That's why I loved it so much. Like I think that we won truly. But anyways, back to Kate Bishop. Um, I loved that. I loved their like little interaction with each other. That was super cute. And but the the mid credit scene with Monica. That's what really got me. I was like, why is her mother here? And also the X-Men. I was like, oh, okay. This has like major implications moving forward. And I thought that was really cool. Here's, I'll say this. The actual end of the movie with Kate and the whole Young Avengers thing. Loved it. I love Kate Bishop. I did stupidly think, because I think they had mentioned uh, Bruno at one point earlier on. And so my mind was like, Jersey City. Ah, that's Bruno from the TV show. Why does Bruno have a bow and arrow? Why does Bruno have a golden retriever? I loved seeing her in there. I think them as the focal points of this is probably the best idea that you can do outside of, you know, getting Yelena in there and she's busy with whatever Thunderbolts are going to be doing. So I'm fine mm -hmm. with it. You know, it's more heavy Steinfeld. I don't have a problem with that. The post credit scene, I love, it's weird. It reminds me of a little bit of the Loki scene from Quantumania where I don't love that post credit scene as what it is but I love Tom Hiddleston's acting in it so much that I'm almost willing to let it slide, almost. Whereas this one, like, you see Tayana Paris actually get to freaking act in that scene, and I was like, oh, you're bringing it to an end credits tag. Good on you. And then, you know, Kelsey Grammer shows up, and I don't know. It, it felt to me more of like a thing of, you know, you mentioned Multiverse of Madness earlier. I think that could have been a really neat thing of, if we still had the Monica from eight. 3886 whatever the other earth on that was i would have liked for it to be that uh maria on that and to kind of 
make that world a bit more developed instead of going like, here's this other new world with this other character who you recognize, who's also kind of a fan service bit and just kind of diminishes the emotional appeal of it all. And so it's not necessarily that I hated it, but in the same way as Quantumania, I think there's one really good thing about it and the rest is, okay. Fair. I think for me, it was more just that like, I wasn't expecting it at all. Oh, and I wasn't so, either. Yeah, and so the shock factor for me, like, kind of like I, I guess I like I and also just the fact that they were bringing like the, in the X-Men and I was like oh wow like that's that's really cool that they're actually doing that and so I think it was just like that and I didn't really like consider it in the context of like what that means for Monica's character although I guess it really just depends what they do with it yeah I think I'm only looking at it that way because again it's a freaking MCU end tag you're not supposed to think that much of it until it becomes important but for me I was looking at it as like but literally a year ago we got a not a fully fleshed out version, but a pretty intrinsically interesting character of Maria in that. And now here's this other version that you're supposed to like because there's an X-Men cameo. And not that Kelsey Grammer is bad. I'm you know glad to see him back in the CG and he sounds really good, obviously. But it becomes a thing of like, this could have been so much more intrinsically tied into what people have been criticizing Marvel for, which is too many scattered things and not enough of a tapestry. And I think it could have been something else. And so as is like, obviously to see Kelsey Grammer in there is really exciting. But if it does become a thing of like, other than like my five second spurt, then going, okay, how does this handle for the movie? Yeah, I don't really have any extra thoughts on that. You're right. But I I do think you have a good point of like, no one was seeing that coming, especially to have like the first real X-Men tie-in being in the Marvels, a movie that unfortunately not a lot of people had a lot of hope for so i'm kind of now curious like when you know deadpool 3 and that whole storm of x-men characters comes out i'm wondering if the reaction will be more muted because people didn't see this yes that is something that i was also thinking about the fact that like they 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 packed so much into the like that last bit of the movie and then also the end credit scene so i wonder like if people are gonna like just completely miss it and not even know that that was something that they missed. All right, let's head to our ratings. Uh, Danielle, you want to start us off out of 10 if you can. Otherwise, whatever creative nonsense you want to go with. I either gave it a 7 or a 7.5. I've only seen it once. And it was a couple weeks ago. So I think I gave it like a 7 or a 7.5. I think I stick with that. Like 7 or 7.5 out of 10. Um, I overall thought that it was really fun and cute. And I think that there were a lot of really good things that I liked about it. I don't think it was the best Marvel movie I've ever seen. But I think that's okay. I had a really good time with it. Yeah, there's part of me that wants to give it a seven and a half purely out of spite, just to, you know, the people who really don't care for it. I think objectively, I'll give it more of a seven out of 10. Uh, Like, I do think it is fun and enjoyable. And that's how I rank my rating system. Like, seven out of 10 is good. There are good things in there. I had a good time with it. I would purely, I watched it twice, obviously. So of course, I would watch it again. Um, But no, I think look, is it going to convert people who are cynical on the MCU at this point and you know, who maybe want a bit more of something like a Guardians Volume 3 or something like Loki Season 2, where it is so densely packed both with lore and and spectacle, but also character. No, I don't necessarily know it's going to do that. It, I hope it will convert some people who don't love the first Captain Marvel movie, because I think it is trying to be a bit more out there, a bit more bombastic. And I think you need something like that for a big sci-fi movie. And I think it does that pretty well, again, between Nia DaCosta's directing and you know, Larson and Tiana Paris and Amon Vellani. And I think all that is fantastic. I think by the end of the day, its steam loses itself a bit too fast. I think with another either rewrite or maybe another scene pacing out here or there, I think it could have been something really tight and compact and really special. As is, 
it's good. I think you should see it either in theaters if you can still see it or in Disney Plus when it drops. But otherwise, yeah, we're both going to defend it. And I think it deserves more than it's getting. Don't listen to the haters. Go see it and go in with an open mind. Koki Riley joining us for the review of The Killer. Koki, how are you? Doing great, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to have you on because I think you're probably at least the most vocal of David Fincher fans that I know. This one was kind of strange, I think, because for a lot of people, it was a Fincher movie that didn't feel like a Fincher movie, or at least didn't have the spectacle of a Fincher movie. I'm wondering, as someone who knows and appreciates his style more than a lot of people, were were the early was the early word of mouth slightly concerning to you, or, you would, or were you curious to see what he would take on from that approach? I was always going to be excited for this movie because of just the subject matter and the fact that David Fincher is going back to his roots with a movie about a killer, you know, like you think of seven, um, you, you, you think of all, uh, you think of fight club, you think of all these sort of, sort of edgier, um, movies and these sort of violent subjects and, uh, and, and something like the, the, something like, like this movie, the killer just felt like it was right in his hit zone again. Um, and, uh, for that reason is why I was so excited for this. And I mean, I kind of understand why maybe the hype was a little bit lower, but I think part of that just has to do with the fact that it's stuck on Netflix and, you know, it's harder to build up that hype cycle when it's just being thrown onto a streaming service. Thankfully, the first time I saw this movie was actually in a movie theater. Um, but I know that it wasn't the case for most people. So if you ever get the chance to see this movie in a theater, whether it's in five weeks or five years from now, I would do it because it, it definitely enhanced my experience with this film for sure you didn't read any of the graphic novel series did you no neither did i mostly because i'm not very well versed in french comics um but also (laughs) i hadn't heard about it i i think if nothing else i was curious to see you know the idea of fincher tackling more source material based stuff because as we've seen he's been plenty capable of doing that before with girl with dragon tattoo uh, fight club obviously but then you get something like mink which is based entirely in history or you get to um you know a even going all the way back to Alien 3, like the idea of him taking something that is already pre-established and kind of doing his own thing. But at least for, as far as I'm concerned, at least as far as I've heard, not many people have engaged with the source material. So there wasn't really a basis to go off of it. And I remember the response coming out of Venice being, yeah, this is good. It should be Fincher good. And I thought that was a very strange thing in a year where we're going to have a Ridley Scott project coming up very soon. Maybe it's actually, as you're listening to this, we might have Napoleon. We already had where he had a uh, Cures of the Flower Moon. We've had these huge name directors, Oppenheimer, obviously, and the idea of what comes with the territory of that director's name, which I found that conversation kind of fascinating. And after watching The Killer, I think I see where a lot of the response is coming from, but I also don't shrug a shoulder at it. Like, I'm not this movie's biggest fan, but I'm willing to go to bat for it. I do think it does a lot of things really, uh, really right. And I'm curious to see what of again, coming into it from that mixed word of mouth, did that impact your viewing at all? For most of his movies, the initial response is always like, oh, it was good, but it wasn't David Fincher good. And then five years later, a year later, two years later, we're like, oh, that's a masterpiece. What a masterwork from the great master David Fincher. And this is just going to be another example of that, I think. I was going to say, that's interesting because going to that point, how many people do you hear talk about Mank, though? It's been a little bit more... Um, warmly received recently, but I think Mank is, again, a little bit different because of the Netflix thing I talked about earlier, because it hasn't really gained as much traction because it's stuck on that streaming service, and we just don't have as much, and it's just harder for us to create an emotional relationship with it. Either, either It's either a major boom, like it is with some Netflix projects, or it's just 
uh, it, it shows up and it's just sort of there forever and doesn't really, you know, you know, grab the uh, cultural zeitgeist. Um, but like, I, I mean, Fight Club was like this for example. I think Fight Club's like the ult- ultimate example of this. Like that movie did not make a lot of money in the theater and it was a borderline bomb. And yet now it's like maybe the movie he's most well known for. And really the only movie, if you think about it, like the only movie in his career where, uh, people loved it immediately and it worked like a charm immediately was the social network. And I think a lot of it had to do with just the Sorkin aspect to it um, and how much people love Sorkin's work. And, and I think the source material had a part to do with it as well, but I mean, Gone Girl uh, was a, was a huge hit at first, but critically wasn't as much of a hit as it should have been Uh girl with, tra- with the dragon tattoo. Wasn't as much of a financial hit as it probably should have been. I mean, you just kind of go down the line, like all of his, mo- almost, most of his movies, um have been sort of underestimated at first and then as time goes on we realize oh like this was a masterwork and i think i think the killer should be one of those movies at least well going back to what you had talked about i also got the privilege of getting able to see the theater at the uh, park in scottsdale Kennel view out here i do really think it enhanced the experience because i think fincher absolutely made this for theaters i think he was tied to the netflix deal and i think he went along with it and i'm curious to kind of start that off as you know, because I haven't heard your baseline argument. I guess you like this movie. I love it. Yeah. Mostly because I just think everyone should watch all movies in theaters. And, you know, I, there's very rarely a movie that's better off watching and streaming. I kind of hate watching movies and streaming in general. That's kind of my like general philosophy. But when it comes to a guy like David Fincher, I mean, you want to see um, all the small details and the biggest screen possible and, and you know, and, and laugh the jokes at the big at, in front of in like a communal experience with other people and i think that's really key with any movie and i think it's definitely key with um the great auteurs you know like killers of the flower moon like you want to see that in the theater i know you can go see it on apple tv plus in a month or two but uh that's definitely something you want to see in a theater and um oppenheimer same thing barbie same thing um these are amazing filmmakers you want to see it in the best possible situation uh and you know, I, I know Fincher really likes work with Netflix, and I understand why he gives Netflix gives him unlimited budgets. But I just kind of wish he, you know, went back to working with uh, traditional uh, studios just so we get his stuff in theaters. You know, you mentioned the idea of seeing details on the screen, and there were a good amount of things that I missed the first time around. I, I of course saw it in the theater one time, and then right before this, I watched like three or four scenes on Netflix because of the convenience, uh, because of the convenience of it. And like, I missed the stuff with like the knife in the purse at the very end, or I missed some of the details in like the house raid or like little things like that. When I was telling a friend about this, about like the general, you know, just story outline, they went, so it's John Wick. And it's not, not John Wick, but I think the broad strokes of it certainly lean to that. But I think he's very much, he's very much going with that baseline of a story to kind of, really enhance the style, really play into Michael Fassbender's strengths, really play into the world that it creates. And I think in a, a lot of that approach, it does work. I think the mileage might vary if we're looking for something genuinely unique and interesting, but I think I really admire the the simple approach and then uh, building a lot of things on top of it. The reason why I would push this movie and, and sort of recommend it to anyone is just how hilarious it is. Like this movie is consistently funny. funny. Oh, it's hilarious. It's like, and, and, and Fincher's just making so much fun of himself. And, and, and a lot of this movie is a, is just a, is a, is a, um, I don't, it's not a direct portrayal of himself, but, it, but a lot of it is just his inner monologue. And 
and um and how he sort of views the world and his and his skepticisms and um i mean the movie's about uh it, it, it and and i don't know i i just find it so i just find it so fascinating that he's willing to just kind of be this open about his flaws and um the, the fact that he's a perfectionist like this character this killer character like the, his whole world is built around is built around being a hitman and and a lot of the movie is about um it, just sort of the grind you have to do you have to go through in order to, in order to be successful as a hitman in that business. And, um, and it just sort of shows that this guy may or may not be full of shit when he's talking about that stuff. And, um, I don't know. I, I just find it, I, I just find it so captivating and fascinating. Let's quickly switch gears into Michael Fassbender, who I don't want to use the, you know, the cliche of, Oh, he's cold and calculating and we got to lean into that. But like, <laughs> he is very much leaning into those things. And I think he's probably the most fascinating part of the movie or the most boring part of the movie, depending on what you're looking at. I wanted a bit more from him, especially once we get into the stuff with Tilda Swinton in the third act and kind of just the overall, you know, stakes of the movie. I wish that was fleshed out a bit more, but I don't think that diminishes anything what Fassbender is doing here. I think just looking at the opening scene alone, you know, there's so much narration and so much monologuing going on that I think it could become, as you said, tedious and just, you know, uh, incredibly pretentious. But I think it is very much Fincher putting an eye to both himself and the genre as a whole, the the expectations that you're playing with of the killer character. And I think what Fassbender does in those opening moments is so crucial because, again, like you say, the drive, the mundanity, the slog of it all, he has to kind of... The hope is that he can pull himself out of that drudge by the end of the movie and whether or not he does by the end, and we might dive into that, but I think the, the pure setup of that, I think, is fascinating on just a purely human level of, yeah, on some facet, we all experience those days. Yeah, and I, I guess for me, this movie works because he's so meticulous and he's so invested in getting every single tiny thing right and um, trying to calculate everything out to such a precise degree. And yet he keeps on screwing up throughout the entire movie. So the fact that in the very first 20 minutes, he actually misses. He does not execute the kill that he's been paid for. It's such a brilliant decision because it automatically, it, because it automatically creates this untrustworthy narrator throughout this for the rest of the movie and, and sort of makes us think about, okay, what is actually happening here? And that, and that tension of, um, uh, what the character believes and sees and the entire movie is shot through him. What the reality of every situation and his situation is, it's just this fascinating tension that um, really sort of sets the rest of the course of the movie, in my opinion. Except I kind of checked and that's one of the things where I feel might be one of the movie's biggest shortcomings, which is that I love it. I love the fact that it's literally a, I checked 20 minute sequence where you're just following along and it's just some of the best stuff of his career i I know it's some of the best stuff of his career and he's made you know some of my favorite movies ever i would have to go back and check if i'd go that far but i think what is so cool about that is that he very much places the faith in the audience like it's not just a two minute sequence where he sets up the gun he misses and then we're good to go no it's very much we are sitting with him we have to be in this character's space because you know either it's he has no name or he has no personality or all the other criticisms levied towards it but I think in the end, it's very much a ballsy choice to let the audience sit like that. And again, not diminishing anything Fassbender does in that, 
I do think that's one of the things where you will either get completely sucked into the character that Fincher is going for, or you will be completely drawn out and then, okay, I guess I'm back in for the chase. Yeah. And I, I like the, like the thing is like the point of this movie isn't to explain his motivations. The point of this movie is to show how, uh, how, how, how this guy who thinks he has this flawless logic has been, it, it has, it is completely flawed. You know, and to question his motivations. Yes, he's a he's a perfectionist, but everything, but all, but like, but it's all kind of BS because again, he's he's screwing up constantly throughout the movie. Um, he says that nothing is nothing to him is personal, you know, and yet everything he does in the movie from from that first scene on is personal, and you know, it's like. He, the guy is just, I mean, it's hard to describe it in any way. He's just full. He's just BS. The guy is BSing the entire time and doing it with a t- completely straight face and, and doing it in a way that is kind of hilarious. And, um, it, and, and, and to me, I, I just, I just find that entire construction just absolutely fascinating. And first time I saw it, I thought the first 20 minutes were absolutely unbelievable and the rest of the movie was very good. And then when you see the movie again, um, not only do you appreciate uh, so these other sequences and how they're shot and how they're directed more, which that's especially true in uh, the Florida sequence. I'll just say that. Um, but at the same time, like you also kind of realize the thematic pace of the story and um, just sort of what Fincher's trying to go for. It, you just find it absolutely interesting. And I even mentioned like the, there's a whole consumerism aspect of this movie and that there, there's all these sorts of different brands that are shown in the film, Amazon, um, uh, Postmates, McDonald's, right? And it, and it's also kind of an acknowledgement from, fin- from Fincher, this guy who uh, is this like total artiste, but at the same time has done commercials for like Nike, you know? And it's like, it's kind of this acknowledgement of, yes, like, like obviously art is sacred, but I'm also a hack who's worked for these giant corporations, you know? And uh, I, I don't know, I, I just find it, I, I, I don't know, I just find this movie just so juicy when it comes to all that stuff. And and as you said earlier, like the, the very simple construction of the plot sort of allows all this stuff to flourish really well. I also want to make it clear, I really do admire the simplicity of it all, the, the structural stability of it all. And it, it is a stable plot. Like, I'm not saying that there's any, like, huge question marks I have, but there's no, like, mm. real pacing issues. Like, the whole thing, I think, is an hour and 40 minutes, maybe a bit longer. Yeah, Um, but it is to me where, you know, you get to a certain point and I think that that gimmick of it all, the idea of the nameless killer who has dedicated their life to this and is questioning themselves for it in the most like philosophical ways. I think that starts to slightly fall apart when you have, you know, the main inciting incident of the of the movie be his girlfriend who is injured or like. By the tail end of the movie, the idea of a CEO who he doesn't have anything against the CEO really. He just doesn't yeah. he thinks the CEO doesn't like him. So it starts to become more personal. And I think if you're going to put that stress on your character, you have to do a little bit more of building block along the way. Because along the way, we pretty much just get, you know, a nameless taxi person or a nameless assassin or Tilda Swinton who pops up, who I haven't said is very good. I've heard a lot of oh, she's amazing. I she's amazing. I was able to cry Tilda Swinton's performance in this, and I think that's, she's terrific. Um, I don't know who these people are, but they are so wrong. This is this is amazing work from her. I really thought so. The writing is a bit weird. No, I think the writing's hilarious. I and I again, like 
I, I again, like I, the way she's able to sort of almost crack Fassbender's character into into him basically admitting that everything he's doing is is wrong and BS, and he's you know contradicting himself, like, and just the just like the facade that he's trying to put on, it, it's just so. I just love like the way Tilda's basically trying to prod him during that scene. It's just fascinating. I love it. Again, maybe it was just me. I never thought she was because we knew by that point that there's someone else we have to go after in this. And so if they had propped Tilda Tilda Swinton's character up as, you know, the mastermind, like the person who can take on everything, like Fassbender's true equal in that sense, I would have believed that we were leaning in that direction. But I knew like, well, there's 20 something minutes of movie left. So. Well, I I don't think it was trying to show that they're like equals or anything like that. It was just sort of the opposite of what he does right because i mean she just lives in suburban new york and has this you know pretty uh like public facade at, even though she's also a hitman um and uh and then you know she's enjoying wines and eating the finest meals and and all that sort of stuff and it, and it just sort of and it's just sort of like tempting for fassbender who is kind of the opposite of that in this movie who, who i mean and I mean, he's a psycho. <laughs> this character is an absolute psycho oh, in this he movie. He's putting like glasses on, uh, like his hotel door just just to make sure, just to see. And he's like sleeping on chairs. And I I could go into a whole different uh, thing about how he about how just crazy he is in this movie. But I I don't know. I I found it. I, I just found it all really fascinating. Like it, it's I I understand why why what you're saying in terms of they're not like. They're not sort of building any, there's no really, there's no background to Fassbender's character that justifies his decision making, right? But I just don't think that's the point of the, for me, that wasn't really the point of the movie. The point of the movie is to show that, um, you, you know, just the, the concept of, of being a perfectionist and the concept of, um, of being that meticulous, like it's, it's it's kind of all a farce, you know, and we're all humans and are by human nature. We all, you know, you know, want the want the um, want the big things in life and um, are, are and we, we believe in one thing, but we're always contradicting ourselves anyway, you know, and I, I kind of find that interesting. And I kind of find it interesting, especially in the uh, in the light of someone like Fincher, who um, is one of the is one of the most meticulous and um, I guess in some people's eyes, psychotic directors of all time. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I find that to be absolutely interesting. And, and, um, and, and even, even in this movie, you could argue that he's also pondering the question of like, is this something that I should be doing or I should have done in my career this whole time, you know? So um, just like how Fassbender's character in this movie, I mean, you can, you can definitely see the thoughts brewing in his head. Like, was this, is this the sort of commitment that it, is was the commitment worth actually doing and um being a hitman so i don't know, I, I find i find all these ideas so fascinating i didn't think about it necessarily that way but i do think that might be the most interesting mirror to fincher on this is the idea of craft and dedication and persistence going the other way around i think that's kind of an interesting thing because especially if you look at it where like you know Mindhunter gets canceled, Mink has to go to Netflix, you know, he, you know, World War Z2 didn't come through. So, like, there have been all these footstops between, you know, Gone Girl and now that I think you could read as far as Fincher, Fincher looking at the killer as a reflection up to himself. And I think that's all really, really fascinating. I think it's just in a movie that 
sometimes tonally and aesthetically and just thematically will sometimes get away from him into, well, this is still an assassin thriller. I don't know. I I, I found this. I, I think this is one of the best movies of the year. Um, I I really think that. Um, now I don't think this is the best movie he's ever made, but at the same time, like this is definitely right up there with Mank, which I thought was also wildly underappreciated. I don't know what your thoughts on Mank are. Um, but again, I loved it at the time. I have not revisited since, and I haven't had an inclination to revisit it since. So what does that mean? <laughs> Yeah, but I think you should because I mean, when I rewatched Mank, I loved it even more, and and that's really and that's really been the case with most Fincher movies for me. Um, but you know, and there's times where Fincher can get uh, like over his skis. You can f- feel that in the second half of Fight Club. Um, you feel that a little bit in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But I don't know. I think his fingers like right on the pulse of this movie. He knows exactly what sort of buttons the press, and um, and again, like there's. Like this movie, even though it's incredibly serious, I, I, you know, I don't think you should take it too seriously. And I'm not t- 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 telling that to you. I'm t- telling that to people who are interested in in watching this movie. Like, keep that in the back of your head that a lot of this thing is just a big joke on on himself. And I, I, I found that to be really interesting, especially with just the arc of his career. All right, let's move on to uh, final thoughts and ratings. Then, Koki, over to you. I gave this movie four and a half out of five stars on my letterbox. So something like that. Um, so, so to me, uh, that translates to roughly like a 95 out of a hundred an a, Nine that's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Again, I've watched this now one and a half times and I really admire it and I really like it a lot. I think I'm going to right now stick with a seven and a 10. Uh, only because I've probably given way too many uh, eight and a half, nines and nines and a halfs this year. We were talking earlier about how good this year has been for movies, and I've just been giving yeah. too many great scores. Um, but also, I, I do think there are shortcomings here. I do think the movie is a bit too into what it's going for, and that kind of gets away within like the last third or so. I wish some of the side characters had gotten some more prominence or at least some more uh, charismatic dialogue here and there. Not to say the script is bad. I just think that there are things that could have been propped up to make the film not likable. I don't think this film is meaning to be likable. I mean the idea of more investing the idea that this is someone who has been at this for a long time and has developed this fear around it. If we're going the John Wick comparison, I didn't need to be like that, but I needed it to be a little bit more gripping. But that being said, uh, Michael Fassbender is, I think, truly excellent in this. We haven't talked about the sound of the score at all. This is another excellent Reznor and Ross score. The oh, sound it's, it's one of their best. Yeah, some of their best work. Again, if, if we're going to see it in a theater, see it if just for the sound design, the idea of like the gun clicking and the wheels turning and every yeah. minute detail of this is really so well done. And again, the idea of if you are at all a Fincher fan, it is going a long way to try and take the focus away from David as a person, and yet you just keep seeing it prop up, and I think that's really fascinating as a film nerd to watch. Would I recommend it to non-film nerds? I think there's still enough. Again, we haven't talked about like all the great fight sequences in there and all the mm. great suspense that kind of is thrown in there. All of those are still in there, and as you have heard from this conversation, it will either completely invest you or leave you wanting just a bit more. But I think it's an absolutely interesting conversation starter, and especially within Fincher's filmography. I'm curious because you've read the book. I have not. I came into this knowing that it would be another Hunger Games movie, that Francis Lawrence would be directing, and that Michael Arndt would be writing. And I was excited about all of that. But you came in with a lot more expectations. And so I'm wondering, you know, were almost a decade removed from Mockingjay Part 2, what were you thinking in regards to a Hunger Games prequel that was not going to be the Haymitch Games? 
with the book, I remember hearing about it and just being like, okay, this is like just a cash grab. I'm not going to read this. Why do I care? And then people were like, no, like it's really good. You should read it. And I did. And I absolutely loved it. And so I was really excited for this movie, assuming that they did it right. Um, because I just think there's so much about this movie that, or so much about this like story that is so important to like the rest of the world that Suzanne Collins has built. And so I really wanted to see it done right. I was a little bit concerned about how they were going to do it specifically because so much of the, so much of like the important parts of the story are found in Snow's internal monologue. And I knew that they weren't going to do voiceovers or whatever for the movie. So I wasn't sure how well they're going to convey that. I think that that fear was definitely founded. Um, but I overall was like pretty excited to see the movie. And I think that it definitely like exceeded my expectations in many ways. I think Francis Lawrence is an intriguing filmmaker. Like I like his Constantine a lot. I obviously like a good amount of what he brought to the Hunger Games. I certainly liked it more than what Gary Ross brought to the first one, which I think is good, if not just a bit disappointing in what it's trying to do. But, you know, Michael Art was coming back, who wrote Catching Fire, which I freaking adore, um, which I literally just watched about a week ago prior to this on TV. And I was like, this, still, this film still freaking rules. And I was curious to see, like, what, you know, Rachel Zegler and Hunter Schaefer and, like, all these new actors could do with, like, you know, Viola Davis and Peter Dinklage. But it also didn't feel like it had the same spectacle as the first. And that might just be because of an age gap thing. Like, you know, it, you and I are not that far apart in age. And I feel like when we were growing up, the Hunger Games was, you know, essentially one generation's removed Harry Potter. It was the big thing. And it felt like it had names like Philip Seymour Hoffman and, you know, Julianne Moore and, you know, freaking uh, Mahershala Ali before anyone knew who he was. Like it had this huge, you know, um, prestigious cast of it. And not that this cast isn't prestigious. It has a lot of huge names to it, but it felt like it was going a bit smaller, which was probably right for a prequel. And again, I only knew like the broad strokes of the book because one of our first stories when we first did this show, you know, two years ago was Sam Ankorvaya, shout out Sam, talking about this movie being announced and her basically being like, I don't want this to be young, sexy snow. And it is kind of young, sexy snow, but I also think, but it is, but it is a bit more interesting than I think I was giving it credit for. I don't know if I love it though. Brandon. All I know is that when I walked out seeing it, my friends adored it and they had not read about the song. They had not read the Songbirds and Snakes book. And me coming out of it, I was like, there are some parts of this that are really compelling and really interesting. I think it's just the first act. I find it so tedious and so overwritten and just so trying to get back into the head of like, yes, this is what Penem is. This is, you know, Snow's ambition. This is his relation with Tigress. This is his grandmother who is, you know, relatable and kind and all this stuff. And all this stuff that was just kind of being propped up as really important and didn't feel important. Then we get into the other two acts, and I thought there was a lot more to actually deconstruct in there, but I just felt like that first half an hour to 40 minutes, in contrast to what we're talking about with the Marvels, where that just went lightning fast, and this just kind of felt like setup upon setup upon setup until eventually we get to you know the games in that sense. That's so interesting that you say that, because um, I actually felt like the... And maybe it's just because I've read the book... I felt like the first act was too fast. Um, Interesting. That might be because I was comparing it to the book. The thing about the book is it's over 500 pages and the games don't actually start until close to like 200 pages in or something like that. It's definitely over a hundred pages. And so there is a lot of that setup. And I think that I agree with you that like, 
I think that a lot was happening and it didn't feel important at first. And that's because I think that they didn't take the time that the book did to really set up, for instance, like Snow's relationship with Lucy Gray. Like I, I think if I had just seen the movie, I wouldn't have bought into their chemistry as much because they just kind of jump into it in the movie. Whereas in the book, it takes a little bit more time. And again, you have access to Snow's inner thoughts about it, which you don't in the movie. Um, and I do want to talk more about that, but I want to quickly say that I know you kind of hinted at this, whether this should have been two movies. I do not think so because I don't think people would have gone to see the second movie. Um, and also I think that this book is just a lot. And I think it probably would have had a similar problem to like Mockingjay part two, where I know I don't necessarily agree with this, but some people criticize like, um, I, I can't remember if it's the first one or second one that people like don't like, but it's like, you know, one of them was just like, a little bit too tedious. And then like the other one had a lot more action. So I think you would have a similar problem with this. I do think, however, that it should have been a mini series because I think that you could have spent so much more time developing things. And like a lot of the things that I wish that they should, that they could have done with this movie. I think if they had that time to do it, that would have been better. And it would have been different from like having two movies or like, I, I don't know. I don't think people would have gone to see two movies. <laughs> I had heard all that conversation after I had seen the movie, and it was, of course, like, yeah, you could definitely do that because the third act definitely feels like a really condensed, and I mean condensed movie in its own right. But at the same time, if you had made that its own movie, I feel like the spectacle is gone. I feel like all the setup has been made, and you might wind up with... I don't think Mockingjay Part 2 has that bad of a problem necessarily, but I think a Ballad of Songwood and Six 2 would definitely have that problem. Yes, I agree. Um, And there's, like... I don't know, with this movie, like, it was definitely really long, and I, I, okay, here's the thing, I actually do wish it had been longer, even if, if they weren't, if they weren't going to, hear me out, if they weren't going to do a miniseries, what I think would have been the best thing for this movie, I think it would have benefited from just an extra, like, 20 minutes, because it's, like, two hours and 40 minutes, right? They could have just made it three hours, and I realize the problem with that, but I do think just an extra 20 minutes to, like, fill in a little bit more of that first act in particular and really like give a little bit more time to talk about like Lucy Gray. Um, and also there's, there's a couple of other things too that I wish they had put in the movie that were in the book. Um, one of the things is that, um, when Clemencia gets like bitten by the snake, there's a scene where basically, you know, she's carted off to the hospital. There's a scene where Coriolanus is in the hospital and he's like sleeping and she wakes him up and she's covered in scales. And she's like, um, you know, I like there, I think I'm going to die. Like, I don't know what they're doing to me. And he's like, Oh, your parents came in. Like they were looking for you. And she's like, no, like that's not, they won't let my parents see me. They're lying to them. Like, and then she gets taken away. And basically he's just like, Oh, like, like the, the doctor is like, Oh, like she's, she's just a little scared. Like, you know, she'll be okay. And, um, so there's that. And then there's also a part in Dr. Gall's lab where this is mentioned multiple times in the book where like basically Coriolanus sees the mutts and a lot of them are humans. Like he could tell that they are humans that have been experimented on. And that is something that I, that would have been so easy to put in there. They didn't even really need to make it that much longer. Um, so that's a qualm that I have, but regardless, like the point that I'm trying to make is like, they, they don't, really hone in on this important aspect, which is like the human experimentation that's going on. And I think that's one of the things that 
really like adds to the fact that snow becomes who he becomes in the end because he sees all of these horrible things happening to people that he genuinely cares about and he still ends up where he ends up at the end you know they bring up the classmate character that what was it clementia clementia yeah clementia thank you they do the whole snake thing. I thought, oh god, that's you know, sh- so shocking. But to hear like there's like a literal blink and you'll miss it hospital scene that they could have included in that whole Lucy Gray. Now I think that wouldn't have taken away anything from the movie. I think that would have been great, uh, especially for a character who is literally built up in I think the first five minutes to be like this really important character, and then just kind of goes away for most of the movie. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I I think I misspoke a little bit. Snow doesn't actually care about anyone, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a little bit. But um, he. He is very, like, startled with everything that happens with his friend. The other thing, too, they they did kind of change her story a little bit. So in the book, it's not like her hubris that makes her reach into the snake tank. What happens is Dr. Gall tells them to reach in, and as they're doing it, that's when she says, oh, by the way, um, you know, as long as they recognize your scent, you'll be fine. And at that point, it's too late, and that's when Clemencia gets bitten. So it's a little thing, but they... It's enough of a change that, I don't know, I, I think that, like, like I said, this, that whole, like, situation it adds to the fact that, like, Snow sees these horrible things that are going on that he's appalled by, and he still ends up being complicit in them at the end. But I think it goes to a larger world-building issue that I think uh, that you were going towards, the idea of, you know, focus on human experimentation, which I thought was interesting, and I think the first couple, like, you know, the first quadrilogy kind of mentioned here and there but i think it could have been necessary for a movie that is so really blatant on going like yeah the game makers are desperate like they need new ideas and i think that would have really driven it forward of like they're so desperate that they're experimenting on their own citizens to be fighting with people who were drawn into the games but they themselves weren't drawn in like it's a really really convoluted thing that you can throw in as like a way to develop the world more so to hear that more and more is a little bit disappointing as well yeah, and actually, thank you for saying that, because that reminds me, when that happens in the book, Snow has this revelation of, like, the capital is supposed to take care of us as capital kids, and they're not. So if they're if they're not taking care of us, who will? And again, even despite having that revelation, it does not radicalize him. And I think that that really says a lot about him, that he had so many people in his ear telling him all the horrific things that were happening and he did not care in the end. I think this is probably a good place to actually talk about Snow as a character. And this is where I find, beyond the pacing and the structural issues, this is where I find my most conflicted about the movie because I actually genuinely think Snow in this movie is a really fascinating, really well-written, really uh, tied together as much to the Donald Sutherland incarnation as possible, but also very much his own incredibly flawed character, I should just say, you know, that incarnation, I think, is really brought to life in the movie. I don't think Tom Blythe is the best person for it. That is so fascinating. Honestly, I thought that he did a great job. My main qualm is not even anything to do with his acting. It's, I think, if there, if there wasn't a book to compare it to, I would have absolutely loved Snow's characterization. But the thing is, I don't think they, and this goes back to like the thing that I was worried about. I don't think that they did a good job showing that Snow was never a good person. Like he does not care about anyone. They make it seem like he cares about Sejanus, like he's Sejanus's friend. He cares about his family. That is not true. He does not care about anyone. Everything, every single thing that he does throughout that book 
is because of his own self-interest. Um, and like an example of this is like, you know, at the beginning when um, he is talking with his family and like his grandma gives him the rose and stuff, what happens in the book is he ends up um, like cutting his finger on a thorn on the rose and he gets so angry and he's like just assuming that like he's, this kind of just goes to how paranoid he is. He's assuming that like his grandmother like, did that on purpose and she's trying to sabotage him because now he's going to get blood on his shirt. Like from the beginning, he is horrible and they did not do a good job showing that he's also like, he's nice to Sejanus only as it suits him. Um, he is nice to Lucy Gray because he wants to win the scholarship. There's not a single thing that he does in that book that isn't for his own self-interest. And I would bring up Tigress. That is the character that I would argue he shows the most affection for in the book outside of like Lucy Gray, obviously, who's like his romantic partner at some point, but he, he definitely shows the most affection for her. However, even in the book, there's a point where she, he makes a comment about how like she made a, she made a vague comment about doing whatever it takes to like help the family. And he starts to think like, Oh, is she like, is she talking about like prostitution? Like she's talking about like sex work, but then he's like, well, she's too ugly for that. Anyways, he, even in those moments, he really does not care about anyone. And like with his family, it's not that he wants to help them because he cares about them. And he sees that they're starving and that they're suffering. It's because he is starving and suffering and because he wants the snows to like have their reputation back. And so like, at least in the context of the movie, I think he does very much care about Tigress. I don't think they show it enough. And I think frankly, Hunter Schaefer is not given nearly enough to do. I think she's, I think she's really compelling and really charming in the scenes that she gets. And I had kind of forgotten that we briefly see her in Mockingjay. So I forgot that she was already pre-established. But I wanted to see more of that relationship more, and the movie kind of just gives you the bare crumbs of that. Um, when we talk about Lucy Gray, I think there's a more complicated conversation around that. I do think he cares to a degree about Serjanus. I think the movie is about him realizing that he doesn't, but I think at the start of the movie, he very much does. That's much more of a, uh, much more of a spectrum and kind of a graph going on that. Whereas with Lucy Gray, I think there's much more of a discussion of like, this is manipulative and toxic, and like, we need to really acknowledge this. The thing is, I love Sejanus as a character. Like, he may be... I'm actually... I'm rereading the book right now, so get back to me in a little bit. But right now, I like, I think that he might be my favorite character in the book. And again, I don't think this is shown as well in the movie. Because what's interesting about him is Snow does not like him at any point in the book. And it's not... It's partially because he's district. But more than anything, it's because he's district and he his family took the place of Snow's family on the hierarchy um, because it's something like his, like Snow's family was investing in district 13 and then district 13 got blown off the map supposedly. Um, and so basically like Sejanus's family did the same thing, but with district two, I believe. And then they ended up, they ended up rising to the top. And so Snow hates him because he's like, and Sejanus is very kind to Snow. His family's very kind to Snow. And Snow's like, I don't care. I hate you guys because you should not be where you are. Which, again, is a detail that I don't think the movie goes into. No, it really doesn't. They they show him, like, talking about, like, and, like, insulting, like, the family at the beginning. But aside from that, not really. They really do give you the impression that they were friends, but they never were. And, and one thing about Sejanus's character, I do think that they did like a 
pretty good job of showing this in the movie is the fact that he struggles so much with, um, with being from the districts and the fact that like the people that he grew up with, like, I don't know if they say this in the movie, but he went to school with his tribute. Um, yeah, they say that. okay. Yeah. So, and it's something that he really struggles with. And one line that I'm so happy they ca- they kept directly from the book is when um, Snow was like, hey, you know, that's not your fault that Marcus won't take the food from you. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm so blameless. I'm choking on it. And I absolutely adore that. Like, I just I think that that really encapsulates Sejanus's character. And I think they did a decent job of showing this in the movie, too. Just the fact that, like, he is like, yeah, I know that this isn't my fault. And also... I feel horrible about it. I have all of these privileges, which is the thing that Snow hates him for. I have all these privileges. My dad can buy me out of things very easily. And I don't want it because I don't understand why I am here. And the people who I grew up with are being treated like literal animals. What makes me different from them? From them? And I also think it's interesting because the capital, like the people of the capital do view him as different. And at the same time, they don't because they say all these horrible things about him and they like don't understand. They hate him for his privilege and they hate him for not realizing his privilege. It just it, it's it's very complex and I like it a lot. Which is probably why he's probably the one of the students at the Academy who can literally throw a chair and yell, you're all monsters on live television and get away with it. Exactly. And Snow absolutely hates him for that. Again, I think that parallels or at least you know intersects the relationship he has with Lucy Gray, which is really interesting, if not, I think, a bit romanticized, both in terms of how people have been talking about it and also what the movie explicitly shows. I don't think that the movie did a great job, like, setting up their relationship at the beginning. I think you're just kind of, like, told, like, they have chemistry and, like, they're, you know, you're not really... It's not the same as, like, the book where they take a lot of time to really develop that. Um But I think that, like, in the second and third act, like, I definitely believed it. Their relationship is interesting because, once again, like, I I definitely get where if you don't have access to Snow's inner monologue, you would think, yeah, he cares about her. But in the book, he does not. Like, he cares about her insofar as it he gains something from it. Um, And even once she wins, he gains something from it because he's romantically interested in her. Um, And I think that that really becomes apparent at the end when we see, you know, what happens with her. What's interesting in the book too, that I don't think that they really showed in the movie. Actually, I don't know if they said this at all is the fact that like he views Lucy Gray as his property. Like there is, I it's the most recent part that I read. Actually, he's talking about like when she goes on TV and she performs that song and he's, he's humiliated by it, but he's like, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what other people think. Everyone in the Capitol knows that she belongs to me. It's as if she didn't have a life before the reaping. Like he actually just views her as his property. Um, And so, and, and again, I, I think that like they didn't do a great job of showing that in the movie, they make it seem like more of a romance than it actually was. I know I'm giving Tom Blythe a lot of crap in this, but I do think Tom Blythe has some moments where he is allowed to be fairly charismatic and very, fairly human. But I think the real uh, the real dynamo of that is Rachel Zegler, who I think is fantastic in this. And I think the reason she's so fantastic is because once you get to that end of the third act and you see where her loyalties really lie, where her priorities really lie, and where she's always assumed Snow to be, and rightfully so, I think you can see that kind of multifaceted approach that she brings to the performance, the kind of, you know, Southern draw of it all, you know, the real emotion that's behind that, but 
what's behind that? And I think there's like several layers to her performance if you really watch it that I was really astounded by and that I think helped me as a viewer really identify with like, you know, of course she would be in a relationship with this guy. He went all the way to District 12 for her. He seems like he's had a change of heart. But no, it's because she's so charismatic and is so able to identify as like, this is someone important to me for whatever reason, but still is. And so I think that's kind of where I'm leaning that whole relationship towards. So I agree with you that Rachel Ziegler was incredible in this. Um, she absolutely perfect casting. Um, but I think in, in hearing you say that, that might be where the disconnect is about like with our opinions about his acting, because I don't know if you agree with this, but my friend who I watched it with also was like, uh, she, she said, um, that she didn't like his acting, that she felt like it was just like fake and like, I don't know, his emotions like weren't all there. If I may, it just feels a bit wooden at certain points. Like, I think the idea was to really have him drawn to the inner monologue aspect of it all, but we don't see or hear that. So it just comes off as like stoic, handsome, blunt British man. Yeah. And so I don't know if the point of the, it, I, I get the feeling that the point of the movie, like what they were trying to do was show like a fall from grace kind of thing. Like they wanted you to believe just based on the changes they made. I think they wanted you to believe that he was good in the beginning. And so I definitely get where that would look wooden. But for me, having read the book and knowing that snow is like always fake, that I think just resonated with me. And I think, again, that's where like some of the disconnect is. And I don't know if that was like intentional on Tom Blythe's part, or if that was just like not great acting, but it worked for me. And I definitely see why it didn't work for you as somebody who didn't have the context of the book. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I think I also said coming out of it, that like, it's not fair of me to critique Tom Blythe that much, partly because of what might be asked of him by Francis Lawrence and what's on the page and what's on the source material. But also because again, he's surrounded by charismatic actors. Like, Josh Andersevera is really charismatic. Hunter Schaefer, Peter Dinklage, Viola Davis, who was having a time of her life in this movie. Like, mm -hmm. she's, he's surrounded by these, not character actors, but who get to play, like, fleshed out, interesting, gimmicky in the best way characters like we saw in the original quadrilogy. And it just makes him kind of feel like, not a stick in the mud, but someone who is very much going through the motions. And in a movie called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, I can get the appeal of that. Like, the best ballads don't necessarily have fully fleshed out central characters at their uh, at their center. That's kind of the point of getting attached to them is the mystery of it all. But I think in a movie where, as you say, so much of the source material is on Snow's intrinsic biases and monologues and all of that, I think the movie loses track of what it's going for. Yes, I agree. And I think some of it is not really their fault. Like I said, it's a 500-page book, and a lot of it yes. is his monologue. And so unless they were going to do voiceovers which I don't think would really work with the vibe of this movie. I, I, I'm glad that they didn't do that. But at the same time, I think there are certain things that they could have done, like very subtle things. They could have had like him say certain things under his breath, or they could have like just taken a second to show like disgust on his face or something like that. Like all of those things I think would have been really helpful in showing from the beginning who he is. Um, and I think they did kind of lose the plot there. For someone like me who was really agitated by the structure of the movie, it certainly wouldn't help to have like a total snow voiceover bit during the games, which is which totally switched the scripts. If like the first is all about snow and the second is all about Lucy and the third is about kind of both of them and their personalities clashing. I think the second the second act being so snow focused would really take away from where the focus and where the intrinsic, you know, viscerality of the movie is going to be at that point. 
Yeah, since you brought up the games, I wanted to also talk a little bit about who they cast as the tributes. I mm, think they did yes. a phenomenal job with that because, first of all, a lot of them are children and that I think, I, I think one of the things that I love most about this book is it's so raw. Like the fact that like th- there's no pomp and circumstance around it. Like they are literally kept in a, a at a zoo. They are not fed. Like it's, th- this was before all of that happened. Right. And so I love that like this is, it's so bare bones. Like this is horrific. And the fact that they cast such young actors to play these kids, I think really like in, more than the other, more than like the previous movies really like shows the horrors of it. Because I really only remember Rue being like a child in the other movies. Otherwise, they were all pretty much adults, I think. Pretty much. And this does kind of go against what you were saying. Um, I do like a lot of them. I like the, you know, the young girl with, the young girl with bronchitis is really interesting. Uh, the total jerk bag who like leads the group of like marauders, like she's fantastic. I want to give a shout out because I needed to find this guy's name. Dimitri Abold, who plays Reaper, who only has like two or three scenes. But I kept watching this guy and going, I need to see you in more things because you have a, he has a presence in this movie and just a sheer kind of, you know, regality amongst everyone else in the games. I know you're talking about like the younger performers and he's like 20 something, I want to say, but he was the one who really stuck with me as like, I need to see him in more things. He is great. I want to return to that, but I wanted to also say really quickly that like, Another thing that I really love is that they cast disabled actors because yes. in games books, a lot of people, including the main people like PETA, for instance, have disabilities and that is erased in the movies. And I think they took that criticism and really like changed that for this movie because there are people who are disabled in it. And I thought that that was really well done. But I wanted to say about Reaper too. Reaper, he's a really, really important character in the book and they definitely cut down on that a little bit in the movie, but I think, I think they still did him justice. Um, there's the scene where like he gets all the bodies together. It's a little bit different in the book. In the book, he like gathers them slowly. He doesn't like kill anybody. He kills one person in the book. Um, and it's because of uh, it and it doesn't really matter. It's because of it's for a specific reason. But aside from that, he's very like, he, everyone is scared of him prior to the games because he's just like so menacing. Um, and I think this is also kind of a comment on how people view black men in particular. He, people are really scared of him. And then they're surprised to find that in the games, he is nonviolent. He, um, doesn't try to kill anyone. What he does do is gather all of the bodies and give them like this proper burial. And he, st- and he does this throughout the games and he stays with them and nobody wants to go disturb the bodies because he will attack you if you try to disturb them. And I think that like, while they, they took away from that a little bit because, um, they changed the story a little bit. I still thought that like that was very well done. And I'm so glad that they included that scene where he's burying all of the bodies. Or I guess not burying, but, you know, he's, he's like, wrapping them the flag. Right, yeah. And I think that kind of goes to the arena as a whole, which I've heard some people say is kind of, you know, bare bones and kind of bare structure and of it all. And I like what the approach is going for, and I like that we start to, you know, as a fan of those original films, I like seeing the beginning of, like, the drone program or, like, you know, the surprises with the snake pit or something like that. Um, I do, I do wonder, I'm curious what you think, or if there's precedence for this in the book, because I came out being, like, Maybe the Capitol bombed the arena themselves to make the arena more interesting as kind of a latch this effort. They don't say it in the movie, and I don't think it's in the book, but I had that thought of just like, oh yeah, the Rebels did that. I'm not saying it's, like, definitely not true, 
but I kind of doubt it. And the reason why is because the whole point of the whole point is that the arena is supposed to be very bare bones because they were doing the games like just I, like, I don't know. It, it was it like barely, it usually didn't last more than a day prior to this because they would bring the tributes in. They wouldn't feed them for several days. They'd let them loose. There's not really places to hide in this arena. Like, you know, it's just kind of like a bloodbath and then like, we're done. Um, and then they started to have the issue of like, why aren't people watching the games? What do we do to make this more exciting? And Snow plays a huge hand in what they do to make it more exciting. And you kind of see that happen. And so that's why I don't really think that the bombing was the capital because if they wanted to do that, they could have just like built a new arena at that point. Um, but also like that was never their plan. But once that happened, that made it so that the arena changed. And then they were like, Oh, this actually makes it interesting and people like this. Um, because the other thing is that in the books, I'm glad that they did this. I'm glad that they changed it so that you can see in the tunnels in the movie. In the book, you can't see in the tunnels. They don't have cameras in there because they weren't expecting it. Um, so you don't see what's happening. You just kind of like, like you see like, oh, what's his name? Jessup come out and he has rabies at one point. Like you just kind of like see people coming out of it, but you don't see what's happening inside. So it provides a bit more of a bit more of mystery than what the movie kind of actively shows you. Yeah, which I think is completely fine that the movie did show us that. Um, just because it's it's a movie, they got to get stuff done. Um, but that I think adds to my point that I don't think it was the capital because I think if it was, they probably would have put cameras in the tunnels if that's what they were trying to do. See, I'm only looking that in the sense of like between that scene and then when Reaper makes his address, and it cuts to you know uh, Viola Davis being like, "Yeah, the rebels killed one of the trip, uh, one of the mentors or whatever uh, situation was." And I think back to like those scenes in tandem, and of just like if they were really that desperate as the movie is calling for, and if Gaul didn't have as much confidence in Snow as maybe she does later on in the movie, I would fully be able to see her being able to orchestrate that of just like, yeah. We have some explosives lying around. Yeah, we've got a nearly dead tribute. Let's play that up for national television, and I'll take that idea until I know this kid is trustworthy. Oh, I'm also not a conspiracy theorist, I promise. No, that's valid. No, I get it. Um, one thing I kind of want to like switch gears a little bit. One thing that I want to talk about is the fact that um, when when you see that Marcus is like you know hung up in the arena once they get him, um, and I just love that whole scene um, because. They're basically like in in the book, Dr. Gall talks a lot about how like the Hunger Games show who like they show like what humanity really is. They show that people to their core are evil and they will kill each other and they don't care. And in particular, the districts will do that. So it's meant to like dehumanize the people of the districts. And I think that like that scene is really great. And I don't I'm that would have been really weird if they had taken it out, but I'm glad that they didn't and that they spent a little bit of time with it because she, I, I don't know the girl's name, but she ends up killing him, but not because it's an easy kill because she knows that he's going to die a slow death. And she sits there with him and asks him like, is this what you want? And he's like, please, please kill me. And that's when she does it. And so I really love that they kept that because it's so important because like the it goes against Dr. Gall's point, the fact that, like, this is what humanity is, because really, she kills him out of pity. It, I'll certainly say this about the games, even if I think the ones in the original and Catching Fire are more exciting. I think these games, one, they tie more to the themes of the movie, which I will give the writing a lot of credit for. And two, I do think they show more of the intrinsic complexity of being that person in the arena, like you're talking about. I think 
the originals, it was, you know, it was Katniss, it was PETA, and maybe Rue or one or two others on occasion. Like, but for the most part, it was either the situation of the, you know, the immediacy of the games or was like everything outside the games. And so I kind of love that this is the first real games that we get where, you know, it feels like you're transported to another world where suddenly the stakes become, this is the games. I need to think of everything as the games. Yes, I I completely agree. I also, I would love to know what you think of the ending, especially as somebody who is not, or the ending specifically with like Lucy Gray's ending, I should say, especially as somebody who's not read the book. First of all, this is the only time I get to mention it. I like the songs a lot. Uh, I think they're well-written. I think they're interesting. I think they're catchy. Um, but basically, because I don't think we're going to have enough time to talk about that. Um, but I like the ending. I think for the most part, you're shown Snow either facing his own complexity, which I think is the generous reading of it, or really trying to mask his own uh, emotional standpoint throughout the rest of the movie. And I think the forest scene, I told my friend this, is really the mask-off moment where, like, you realize this guy is a complete jerk bag and has just been hiding so much of it beyond pomp and circumstance and, and posture and all that. That scene in the forest, even though we don't see, you know, the two of them necessarily side by side for the entirety of it, I think for, again, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is explicitly about Snow's character, I think it really works for the end of it as, you know, this, as cynical as it can feel, it does also feel weirdly uplifting to a point of like, ah, we don't need to like look at him as anything else. Like, this is who he is. This is finally who we get to see. And then we build that up to his competition with Dr. Gall at the end. I think it's a really interesting one-two punch of character exploration that the movie has kind of been trying to sidestep like a snake. haha. And so I think getting to see that in the end is really rewarding as a viewer, even if, you know, by the end of it with the whole statue moment, you're left with like, huh, things are not good right now. Yeah, I, I love the statue. Um, also, quick note, I love the, the this they added, um, Hunter Schaefer's line where she's like, I think you look just like your father, Coriolanus. Loved that. That was new and I liked it. Um, but I will say that, again, this is like a book thing. I, I'm really glad that like you liked the stuff with Lucy Gray. I didn't like it, but it's because in the book, it's a lot more ambiguous. You, you don't know if Snow is just completely paranoid or if Lucy Gray is actually onto him. And then you also have no idea if he kills her or not, if she's even there. You have absolutely no idea what goes on. And they didn't do a good job of showing that in the movie. I definitely felt they did because he shoots someone, we think, and then there's the Jabberjay stuff. And then, you know, Pierre Dinklage makes the remark at the end of like, yeah, they never really found her. We don't know what happened to her. So like, I kind of, I felt that idea of like, we don't know what happened to Lucy Gray, much like we do in the song. And it kind of all ties together. Yeah, that's definitely fair. But like, I, so in the, in the like scene where she's telling him like, oh yeah, I'm going to go like get this Katniss. I will say that, like, I don't really know if there was a way that they could have done that better. But, like, you definitely get the vibe from her acting that, like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go snitch for sure. But in the book, it's very much, you really have no idea. It's a lot more ambiguous. Um, And also, I'm glad that you picked up on the fact that, like, oh, like, you know, her body's not there. What really happened? Because I know a lot of people who are like, oh, wait, so, so she died. Whereas like in the, uh, or they're like, wait, I don't, I don't get it. Cause I know that she died, but where was her body? And in the book, it's very much like you have absolutely no idea what happens to her. You don't even know if she was there in that moment. Well, see, I, what I like more is that when he shoots, like we don't see anybody, like he very well might have shot anyone. And I kind of like that 
like it really could have been like oh he shot like a random hunter and like that's his ferocity if like no he very well might have not seen anyone yeah for sure i also i really want to know what your thoughts are on the dean high bottom thing the whole poisoning at the end felt a little bit over the top to me like I understand why it's there. It has a great kind of, you know, character catharsis to it. And like all that I agree with, but it did feel like one last thing of just like, we need one big rising action and the whole, you know, him strutting confidently through the Capitol isn't good enough, which to me, it felt like a low confidence effort on Francis Lawrence's part, but it, it's not the Peter Dink, which is doing a bad job. He's totally eating up the scenery in that moment. I love the whole monologue he gives about, you know, him and Stowe's father, which I love the ambiguity of that. I love how you can't at that point quite tell if he's telling the truth, but you tell it, you can tell that there's a bit of semblance of truth to it. And I like how the, the last 10 minutes of the movie really play with the, that idea of like, you were expecting results from the movie. That's kind of on you. We weren't going to give that to you in the first place. So I like that. I think most blockbusters wouldn't be that daring about it. So I kind of respect it on that. But purely from a structural standpoint, when I dealt with, you know, two hours and 10 minutes plus by that point, I was like, Okay, another thing. How many? Okay, now the movie's over. Cool. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that because um, they the book like really takes the time to and the movie does this too to establish like why Snow uses poison because that's something that's talked about a lot in the in like the original trilogy and it's because like really what he realizes in the games is like if he leaves a trace right like then he's gonna get caught so he's like all right i just like won't leave a trace uh, i'll just use poison and specifically he puts it in this guy's morphling because he's like okay they're just gonna think that he drank himself to death um and i think that is really great i also really love throughout the book there's this question of why did the games happen what what is the purpose why are we doing this specifically and when you get the answer it's just because I was drunk and I actually really regret that. And it's just so fascinating because like in the original trilogy, we're presented this capital that's so careless and like doesn't see a problem with the games. But in this book, you see a lot of like people think it's appalling. They don't get why we're doing it. And the guy who created it, it wasn't to punish the districts. He actually regrets it so much. They spent the rest of his life high on morphling all the time to deal with the pain like that is just so powerful. Yeah, and in that sense, I think it only elevates what Peter Dinklage is doing here because I really like the kind of nonchalance he brings to the role. I wasn't a huge fan of it initially, but then once you go on later forward and you kind of see the numbness that has taken over those in power of like, yeah, on paper I can do things about this, but I can't really. And I that goes to the whole idea of like power that the movie is dressing, and we don't have time to get that because we already went along with this. Yeah. And also, last thing I want to say is Viola Davis did great. Uh, she really captured the essence of Dr. Gall, which is absolutely insane. And I loved that. She delivered every line perfectly, it, exactly how I would have imagined Dr. Gall in the book. I'm curious real quick, the costumes. I was a big fan. I I think that um, it's interesting because like it's definitely a bit toned down from what we see of the Capitol in the original trilogy. But it makes sense because they're still recovering from the war. And, like, Coriolanus in particular, like, can barely get a nice shirt, let alone, like, the crazy stuff that we see later on. I love the Academy looks. I love, I think it ties into production design as well, like, the whole, like, 50s TV look and everything. But, like, I love Lucy Gray's dress. I love how the districts kind of feel similar, but still much more run down than they might have been before. Uh, you're right about the whole capital and their whole aesthetic with everything. Again, I wish we got more with Tigress because in the franchise that is so much about fashion, I feel like she's a really intrinsic character, but 
neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, just a little nice little touch that I think the movie deserves yeah. credit for. I agree. I and when I said it was toned down, I mean that in a good way. Like I think it should have been, and I like it a lot. Cool. Uh, ratings out of ten. Let's go for it. I would say like an eight and a half. Honestly, um, I really liked the movie. I think that if I had seen it without reading the book, I would probably like it more. Um, I just think that there's a lot of really core things that they changed that I think change the just really even like just the way that you view snow. So yeah, I would say that I would give it like an eight and a half. I think it was very good. I think it was a bit rushed at the beginning. It definitely should have been a mini series. Um, but overall I was a fan. It might be a little bit low. I'm going to say 7.5. I think it's still pretty darn good. I love the stuff that does really right. There are just things about it that kind of drive me up a wall. And again, that's coming as someone who didn't read the book. I'm I'm glad to hear that you as someone who was more irritated about it for leaving things out of the book still gave it a higher score. If you're somebody who just watched all the movies and really liked them, you'll probably still really like this movie. Um, but if you're thinking of it from like a more technical like film stance like Brandon is or like you read the book and you're comparing the two, you might have a little bit of a lower rating. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, I know this has been a long time coming. It's a bit of a weird thing to come back with, with a very sporadic recap of last year that doesn't include the Barbenheimer stuff. We'll get into it with 2024. I will try as hard as I can to get that back to consistency level. And if you want to stick around with this journey with myself and with whoever joins me on this, follow the podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed. We're still there at Plot Devices. Search for us, give us a follow and give us a rating too. It does help us determine who is liking the show, who might have changes in mind for it. And if you want to tell us about those changes, Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, and TikTok, at Plot Devices Podcast. That's going to be used more often, by the way. That's a big hint for what's coming in the future. Ha ha he he. And if you want to follow me anywhere further, Twitter and Instagram, at TheMovieKing45. All of my further information is in those bios as well. So thank you all so much for joining me into the return of Plot Devices. I hope this continues for a good long while. Cheers to 2024. I hope you all have a wonderful new year. And... 